It's the GOAT of sports apps. Talk about the greatest of all time. Big Joe's the greatest of all time. He's the GOAT. We know it. <laughs> I, I'm going to say I'm the Djokovic of this scenario. <laughs> I love it. Love it. Download the OTB Sports app now. OTB AM. With Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. All right, you're very welcome along. It's Thursday morning, a nice short week for you out there. It's OTBAM. It's Jerry Roy here with you all the way through until 10. If you want to get involved in any of the conversations we're having, we'd love to hear from you. 0879-180-180 is the WhatsApp number. You can always uh, leave a comment on the YouTube stream. You can follow us at OffTheBallAM on Twitter as well. A little bit later on, we'll get into the details on last night's football, which was a pretty uh, classic night of Arsenal action where they go to Stamford Bridge and they win 4-2 with one of those performances that makes you think, this team's really good. They could do anything. Uh, as it stands, they're still fifth from the table, but they have opened up a bit of daylight between themselves and Manchester United. Uh, Newcastle beat Crystal Palace to get over the 40 points mark, so prepare yourself for the uh, incredible transfer activity that Saudi Arabia will be funding for Newcastle in the summer. Everton scored a 94th minute uh, equaliser against Leicester City to get themselves a point and a little bit of breathing space against Burnley. But the big story of the night, of course, was Riyad Mahrez Settling the nerves uh, for Manchester City as they ended up beating Brighton 3 0, but it was uh, nil all at half time. Mari scores a classic counter attacking goal for Manchester City. Well done, Brighton, uh, leaving yourselves open to the counter attack at the Etihad. Clever work, lads. Uh, anyway, they were beaten 3 0, and uh, Manchester City are top of the table. So that was the main overnight uh, headlines from the world of sport. We'll get into that a little bit later on. Here's what's coming up on the show between now and 10 o'clock. A really busy show and varied stuff for you. We're going to talk rugby, uh, particularly um, some of the rule changes, the standing of the URC in South Africa, and more. We've got Nico Roach at 10 past 8 in studio. He's got a new role where he's going to be in charge of the professional Irish cycling teams who represent Ireland on the international stage. Sports pages at half eight. Sports news at 8.40. Colin Boyle is going to preview Meath and Galway. Sorry, Mayo and Galway, obviously, this weekend at 8.50. Will Flory is going to join us in studio. He's uh, keeping his UFC dream alive. And then we'll hear from Mark Lawrenson after an absolute pummeling for uh, Manchester United. If you're a Man United fan, you're still licking your wounds this morning, you've got thoughts that you'd like to share with us, then, you know, give us your reflected thoughts. And uh, if you're a Liverpool fan and you still want to gloat, well, then we've got the forum for you here. So, as I said, you can leave a comment on the YouTube stream, you can tweet us using the hashtag OTBAM, or you can get us on any of the other platforms, the multitude of platforms that we are. But at 7.32, I'm delighted to say uh, Stephen Kisby-Green, SKG, is with us this morning. Uh, good morning to you, Stephen. How are you? Morning, Jigger. Things off. Um, uh, one of the things that's happened uh, that we see in the papers this morning is that you URC are now talking about copying the trial that's ongoing um, in the Southern Hemisphere when it comes to the 20-minute red card rule. And this is coming, it seems like, in a very separate conversation from we need to continually uh, enforce the rulings and uh, make sure that we change people's behaviour when it comes to tackle height and red card. And I'm like... These conversations don't seem to be particularly joined up here. So, first off, and this does seem like it's going to happen, does it? It unfortunately does look like they're going to at least trial it again. It's been working in, um, well, this isn't working. It's been trialed in, in Super Rugby at the moment, and nobody seems to be talking about it over there as being a huge failure, which is strange because it does definitely look like a failure from the outside. Um, but yeah, the, the, the World Rugby are definitely looking at trialling it uh, on the Northern Hemisphere and actually in the international window this this, uh, this summer as well. It's going to happen in the URC. If it happens in the URC, it's going to have to happen for the whole season, right? Yeah, yeah, it'll be, it'll be, it'll be the full thing and it could even potentially spill over into the 
Champions Cup, depending on how it works in the URC, because it would be weird if it went URC and then didn't go Champions Cup, because then you've got Leinster and Ulster and Connacht and, and Munster all playing one set of rules in one competition at the same time as playing a completely different set of rules. So it'll spill over. The, 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 the trial looks like it's going to be more, um, more realistic uh, and more widespread uh, as, as the thing goes on. What's the push behind this? Why are they doing this? The, I think the idea is um, there's a fan backlash of um, red cards ruin games. It's the idea that it, once a team goes down to, to 14 men, that or 14 men or 14 women or whatever it is, um, that the teams themselves can't compete. So it becomes a bit of a farce. And it, like, just look at the the Italian game in the Six Nations. Uh, it wasn't the the best of, of, of spectacles but again you also look at the, at the opposition so I think that's where it's coming from it wants to try and re- keep the competitive nature of matches especially when teams go down to 14 men but that kind of rings a bit hollow if you look at what happened this past weekend in the Champions Cup I mean there was five red cards throughout the entire Champions Cup which is a fairly ill-disciplined weekend let's be honest but of those five only one of the matches were actually detrimentally affected by the red card. The re- I mean, Sale and Bristol was probably one of the best we- best matches of the weekend, and Sale had 14 men for uh, 55 minutes. So it, the, the, the idea that the red cards were in matches is actually just ridiculous. Well, what's the point of the red card? Uh, it's supposed to be to try and force, as far as I can understand, it's supposed to be to try and force um, teams to, or players to re- reassess how they do things and actually punish them for doing bad things. So, for example, um, the, right now, as you, as you alluded to, the idea is to pr- we, we want to protect um, players' safety, and especially in light of a lot of the d- d- early onset dementia cases coming on and the, the issues with concussion, etc., etc. The idea at the moment is to punish people for high tackles. But now, if you're going to effectively reward a team to go back to 14, to go back to 15 men after 20 minutes, sure, the player themselves can't come back on. But the team is not is not punished. The team is not putting any pressure on that player to do better. It's 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 weird, and um, it kind of it doesn't force coaches to instill a lower tackle height in the training sessions. It doesn't do anything really to to try and it, 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 as you say, it goes against what um, the World Rugby claimed to want to do with the with with, with the tackle height. Okay, so the, the, um, there's a story in the back of the uh, Irish Independent today, and I suspect it's in some of the other papers as well. Um, the head of the URC, their head of match officials, is a South African. His name is Tape, T-A-P-P-E, Henning? Yeah, Tape Henning, yeah. Tape Henning, right. So he took the role on last December, and he says that they are going to look into the 20-minute red card. It is still on the agenda. Uh, he's also hopeful of having neutral TMOs, which would be a good step forward for uh, the competition. Just, you know, not suggesting anybody, anything untoward is happening, but, um, you know, it's always, always good to uh, be above uh, suspicion. Um, and he's saying they're open to this idea, but, he, look, in fairness, it's a, a nuanced answer the other side of it is that if you want to change player behaviour and headshots and things, the punishment must fit the crime. How do you change behaviour with soft decisions? That's the question, right? Because we're seeing too many soft decisions still where there is head-on-head contact and instead of just going, I, I, I don't really care about the like the mitigation or I don't really care about the intent or I don't really care about the, the damage. It's like, that's head-on-head. There, you, there's a, a tiny percentage risk that you took that's too much risk because it's leading to early-onset dementia these things are linked. 
So you lower your head height or you get a red card. And it's automatic red card. As opposed to this, we're all sitting looking at the video going, it's head and head contact, that's a red card. It's not a red card. No, it is a red card. It's like, no, all head on head contact is a red card. Irrespective of whether or not it's accidental. You just do that. And then, and then maybe the behavior changes because nothing has changed the behavior so far. True, but as um, Andy Dunn actually was on, on the show last night, he, he alluded to it's not so much a um, a lack of willingness from the players or the, per se. It's more like these things that can often often happen accidentally. Like Look at um, Jamison Gibson-Park's yellow card against Connacht, where I personally think it should have been a red card. I don't agree with the idea that, they, that um, he fell into him because that's a bit of a rubbish answer. But at the same time, it was ta- being tackled already and Gibson Park didn't lunge towards the player with the shoulder, so it wasn't a deliberate head-on-head. No. So I, I agree, it should have been a red card, but at the same time, it's not so much a behavioural thing. It's more of an accidental thing, and that's what Andy, Andy Dunn was getting on, on about. It's not like the tip tackle where it's a, contin- a, a conscious decision to tip the player and drive them into the ground. It's, these things can happen on the rugby field, and a lot of the time they are rugby incidents. But at the same time, if you are trying to if you're claiming that you want to protect players, players right now and in the future, if there is an accidental head contact, you kind of have to give some form of punishment for it. Yeah, I, and I think that actually just the red card would, would eventually would, would have an impact. Where uh, The other thing is the 20-minute the red card, and it's coming through here on the, on the uh, comments already. The 20-minute red card is absolutely ridiculous. Everybody I speak to in real life, in real day-to-day life agrees as Jessica and Fergus says, if red cards ruin matches, maybe players should stop doing things that result in red cards. I mean, they haven't fixed the loophole. They haven't fixed the, the rules that caused the incident in the Italy game and that is continuously happening. It's like the, it, it, the people who are in charge of rugby cannot get out of their own way. Uh, too many Billy Big Bollocks is, is the uh, issue here. That They just can't have a conversation and go, what's going to make this sport better? This is going to make the sport better. And if there's a problem with it, we'll fix it. But when the problem emerges, it's like, can't fix that now. We made our decision. That's our bad. We've got to lie in it. I don't actually think, though, that there was an issue with that rule that's going down to 13 men with Italy. Uh, there is. You're, getting two, you're punishing two people for the same incident. You can't do that. No, but you're not. You are. You, you actually, what happened was two people ended up not playing for the same team because one player got red carded. That's what happened. Yeah, be, because the team... Ah, uh, uh, you're qualifying it now. No, I'm um, I, I, explaining why I don't think it's a um, why, why I don't think it's an issue. It, um, the, the, the the incident in in that case was a bit of a over an overstepping of the of, of the well not overstepping it was following the laws exactly exactly but exactly the, but the law is bullshit. No, well no because it's not though because you you want to ensure that. Um, a team is not well, going to well, cheat. Well, the team's not going to cheat, but also you want to ensure that scrums are competitive, but also safe. So if you if you can't field a full front row, and there's no one's uh, there's no specified front row player that can fill in for that role and safely. And I don't know if you've been in the front row, but I know I, I, it's it's a a minus. long time ago. Yes, <laughs> as an under fourteen, so I would say it's not quite the same as uh, the front rows you were in. But go on. No, no, it's it's, it's madness, but. Um, uh, I, I played all three in, in high school. I didn't play uh, pro, but yeah, uh, played all three all three positions in high school. And it's it, it, unless you know, unless you're trained how to do it for, in each individual position. Sure, it's very risky. It's very risky. Now, if um, say for example, you are, uh, can, I, can, playing, I just, can I just make the, the point? I understand the point you're going to make. But if a team has been had a player red carded for an incident, right? Yeah. 
then in that instance, it's they're already being punished. And so it's not like they're, they've had the red card on purpose to go to uh, uncontested scrums. It's, a, it's a, an unintended consequence. And so double punishment in all sports has eventually, even football, like the slowest, stupidest rule makers in the history of all sports, finally caught up with the idea that a red card and a penalty, do we do, the, do, we do both at the same time? Oh no! Hang on a second. That's that's kind of that's ruining the game. But then at the same time, why do, why, why do we give red cards or yellow cards at the same time we give penalty tries? Now, you almost never see that. You, 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 if okay, if yeah. you if you think about it, if you think about it, most teams are kind of glad that the try got scored because it prevents the red or the yellow card. You very rarely see the double punishment of the yellow and the the, uh, the try being scored. In the o- occasion, you do. In the Northern Hemisphere. In the Southern Hemisphere, it's very often given where... What can I say? Card, We're just better card. up here, Stephen. <laughs> I, I, the, the, it just it makes me really irritated. There's two separate, there's two separate rules for well, it doesn't the make any Southern sense. Hemisphere. It, it makes Okay. We, we got sidetracked there. So uh, what, what else were we going to talk about? Um, well, yeah, so... So Leinster, Leinster have been... Um, uh, they they they're sending their squad to South Africa for um, their uh, mini tour. How is this going down in, in South Africa? How are they being perceived? Well, yeah. Do, do you know who's who's in the squad? Do you want me to read through the through the list? Just in case anybody's missed this, maybe the list of players who aren't in the squad would have been. Uh, go on, yeah. I think that that list is too long. Uh, this is, so we've got Ed Byrne, Peter Dooley, Michael Milne, Andrew Porter, Ronan Kelher, John McGee, James Tracy. Vak Abdaladze, um, uh, Michael Alatoa, Thomas Co- Thomas Clarkson, Brian Deeney, Jack Dunn, Josh Murphy, Martin Mooney, Reese Ruddock, who's captain, Sean O'Brien, Scott Penny, Max Deegan, Alex Soroka, Cormac Foley, Nick McCarthy, Harry Byrne, David Hawkshaw, Tommy O'Brien, Rob Russell, Kieran Frawley, Rory O'Loughlin, Jamie Osborne, Adam Byrne, Chris Cosgrove, and Max O'Reilly. And the, the immediate thing that stands out to me there is, it is basically a bunch of children, uh, with a, with a th- with a few um, Irish internationals thrown in. Pretty hairy children who you wouldn't want to meet down a dark alley. But oh no, go def- for it. definitely no, no. It's I, I wouldn't want to want to come up against any of them. But uh, uh, when you compare the the squad that's available to Leinster, this is arguably it's arguably comparable to the. Academy team that Munster put out against the Wasps, and that was out of out of absolute desperation. I do see two thirds of the best front row in the world there. Uh, trademark uh, various uh, Irish pundits in the aftermath of the first game of the Six Nations. Yeah, so um, if you look if you look at it, you got uh, Andrew Porter, Ronan Keller, Reese Ruddock, and the, the the two Burns. There is there there is a quite a few there's a few players there that you you'd imagine would be considered top top class, but. It's not the strongest side by any means. I mean, you just look at the players that aren't there. You've got no Sexton, no Henshaw, no Ringrose, no Furlong, no Healy. Flair, yeah. No, no Van der Flair, no... Um, actually, n- none of the Irish back, um, back row, to be honest. Yeah. Okay. So it's a, it's a weakened team. And I'm sure the South African sides are licking their chops. They're delighted about this, right? The sides themselves are, but the fans are not happy. They don't think that they. Uh, okay, I'm going to preface this by saying it's not my it's, it's not my feelings. It's not I, I completely disagree with them, and it's also not the feelings of the majority of South African fans. But it's a very loud minority that think that Leinster are disrespecting both South Africa, well maybe not, maybe not South Africa as a whole, but the South African team that they're facing, and the URC as a competition by sending this the side to to South Africa because they. 
it, it, yeah, it, it, se- it seemed like either either they think that they can win with this uh, second string side, which is, a, I mean, I think we can all agree it's a largely second string side. Um, either they, think they can beat the the best team in South Africa uh, with this second string side, or they literally don't care about these two games. They're happy to lose them, and they are focusing only on the Champions Cup, and that's it. Now that's the belief system of the, the minority of South African fans, but the loud minority. It's very, very unlikely South African rugby fans to take offence at uh, almost nothing, is it? I mean, it's. Uh, I mean, all Completely fans. Out of character. All, all, all fans have the have the quirks. <laughs> uh, well, and what happens now if Leicester go down with this team and beat your teams? Highly possible, um, this, this, but not not likely. If that makes uh, if that makes any sense, um, the Sharks are the only team so far in South Africa on South African soil that have lost a, a, a match, um, and they surprisingly, I think it was it was Edinburgh that they lost to, which was a big shock. I would have, I would have expected the Lions to have lost to Munster, to be honest, um, and that was actually a fairly well stocked Munster side as well. It wasn't full strength, but it was eighty to ninety percent there. Um, so it's it's possible, but I don't think it's going to happen. Um, the, the, the Sharks. I've learned from from their mistakes against uh, Edinburgh, and um, well, actually, they've learned from all their mistakes recently, really. Um, and the Stormers are actually on a roll, so I don't see it happening. But um, you can understand why Leinster have sent the side, because it it makes sense to to prioritise a knockout game as opposed to a league game. They are ten points clear of the of their closest competitor on the URC. Yeah, yeah. So they can afford to lose these matches and I do think that they are going to lose these matches. Whether it be with bonus points or not, I don't know. Spread is three points. That's not a, a massive spread for people to be getting um, upset about. But look, I, 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 I guess it does serve to offer an opportunity to speak about how the competition has been perceived by South African rugby fans and how welcome it's been because it, it's been such a slow start it's been in the works for such a long period of time COVID interrupted teams got trapped down there it was generally conceived or generally considered to have been um, I take offence to trapped down there a bit of a disaster <laughs> <laughs> couldn't, couldn't get out I mean there are worse places in the world than to be stranded in Cape Town uh, it's true. Oh, they weren't allowed to leave their hotels, were they? Was it? You still see sun. When was the last time you saw sun in Dublin? Uh, this morning. <laughs> it's a bright, sunny day as I cycled across the Liffey. I was it sank like miserable hell. when I did. <laughs> um, so, how has the tournament been perceived? Is it, is it uh, are South African rugby fans on board with this tournament? It's mixed results, to be honest. Um, it's the URC is the biggest competition South Africa can take part in at the moment because obviously it replaced Super Rugby, and at the moment, and before, and Super Rugby and the Curry Cup were the only two competitions South African teams were involved in. And South Africa, like for historically, the biggest competition should be the Curry Cup because it's the oldest, it's the oldest professional rugby, or well, not professional, it's the oldest competitive rugby tournament in the world. Um, that hasn't really changed too much. And it's got so much history behind it in South Africa. However, in with the sort of development of the, of the Pro 12, Pro 14, Super, Super Rugby, etc. Sorry, not Pro. Sorry, Super 12, Super 14, and then um, on, on Super Rugby, it kind of took a back burner, and the international window kind of took over. So a lot of the time, the Curry Cup was for the second string teams and development squads. Yeah. Um, so that's why now that that's where it's become, where it, it's no longer that prestige that it used to ha- used to have. So um, a lot of fans are like, okay, cool. We want we we want to be competitive in the Curry Cup, but we don't really care. That's for like the Chikwas and the and the Eastern Province and um, the, the, the Pumas and them. The big franchises they'll focus on the international tournaments like URC or Super Rugby, and it 
it started off not going too well because obviously South African fans they want they want what they're used to they're used to playing the, the, the New Zealand teams they're used to losing to the New Zealand teams and they're happy enough to lose to the New Zealand teams as long as they can compete against what they see as the best teams in, in, club, in club rugby which they which a lot of South Africans still think are in New Zealand they don't necessarily think that the, that the English the premiership which a lot of people over here think is premiership is the best club competition in the world um Top 14 fans think the French rugby is the best in the world. It's a, South Africans think that the best um, club competitions is in New Zealand. So they want to play against them, but they also just want to see South African rugby play internationally as well. So it's not like it's, it's not like they don't like the URC. Um, the, it's all they've got. It's all they've got, and the issue is. Um, they haven't had live rugby that they've been able to go to stadiums for for like the past two and a half years. Okay, and I think um, next year is really when we can judge exactly how well or otherwise this experiment of the South African teams moving to Europe has worked because the South African teams on the basis of this year's URC will qualify for the Heineken Champions Cup next year and as it stands three of the South African provinces would be uh, you know, it's not finished yet but um, three of the teams would be qualified for next year's Champions Cup I suspect that would change the tenor of things. Yeah, um, I think they do want to. I mean, like uh, to be able to play the likes of um, a top top tier Toulouse team with Intermac and Dupont and all of them in it would be amazing for for the South African fans. And then um, just the idea of winning more silverware is uh, just any potential to win silverware South African fans will want. And also the fact that it's a now a, a third competition that South African teams will be playing for is something that they've never had before so it'll be it's, a, it's new it's nuanced it's, it's interesting so th- that automatically will, will give South African fans something to play for or something to, to cheer for and then the, the players themselves uh, even though South African squads are not actually as bloated as um, Northern Hemisphere squads are because uh, financially they just aren't they don't, they don't, they don't have the, the, the funds to, to pay the, their best players so a lot of them get shipped overseas uh, Is there a possibility that they they uh increased profile of the Champions Cup might lead to more revenue and therefore allow for some more of those best South African players to stay or is that pie in the sky? Uh, completely pie in the sky purely based on the fact that the South African round is weak. You cannot um, you, you can't really argue that any uh, any increased revenue will make no difference whatsoever because um, the, the, the South African franchise will only be paying in rands and you can't um, compete with the, with the pound and the euro, or even uh, and the Japanese leagues at the moment, which a lot of a lot of South African rugby players are going to, um, largely because it's actually slightly softer. I don't want to, It's not like I'm not saying it's soft, but it's slightly softer than Europe or South Africa. A lot of South African fans, or a lot of South African players, like to take that bit of a, a sort of six, six months or a three month palate cleanser in, in, in Japan to, to, to get them it's, it's sort of like an off season but it's not really an off season so they keep fit but they don't get the heavy hits that they, they would get every week in, in the URC or the Champions Cup or, or, or South Africa or whatever um, DLN has gone to Japan we think, is that the general consensus in South Africa? That's the story yeah, it's looking likely that he's going to, going to Japan. And would he go for a couple of seasons or would it be like, uh, so when you say it's just a couple of months, what, what, what like so on rare occasions, South Africans stay there like quite permanently, like Franco Mostert and Clocker Smith. They're both um, are sticking around for quite a while. But for the, for the vast majority of them, go for about a three or four month stint. Lucanio Am, he's there for six months, 
and then he's back in back in the Sharks, and which is weird that he kind of left mid-season as well. That was I found that interesting. And so, not to individualise it, but um, for any of the the players who go there, what kind of money are they making compared to how much they would make in Europe? Or I don't know the exact figure because I don't think Japan bro- um, published those figures exactly. But it's you can argue it's about twice as much as they would make in South Africa. Right. Okay. And then you can come back and go back and do whatever you want. And uh, so. It's hard to it's hard to disagree at professional sports people who are risking life and limb uh, for making money, but especially if um, the, the the red card rule is going to allow them to be hit hit head high repeatedly. Yeah. Okay. And then the last thing is the um, I don't know who floated the idea, but the the suggestion was that the final for this year's URC could actually be in South Africa on South African soil to try and bed the competition in. And um, what well, I presume this would be very welcome from South African fans. Yeah, like, you, you'd, you'd hope. Um, the, the idea is they, they want to try and fill stadiums and they want to try and as you say, like get, get South African fans to wedded to this idea. They want to see the best players play in South Africa. Now, Lens is not doing, doing any favours by not sending their best players to South Africa right now. So, and as, as, as so far, no, so that no Northern Hemisphere team has sent their best team to South Africa yet. Um, they've all sent slightly weak insides. Interesting to see how Connacht get on when they have their full team out. Do no, they're, they're leaving two or three um, of the players that are not um, con- continuing on next year. Yeah, yeah. So, and the, the, I would consider those first string players. Okay, so, fair so, enough. So they're not again. They're not uh, like no Sammy Arnold. That's um, but yeah. Um, it's it'll be. It'll be well received if if it is on, on South African soil. It'll be better received if a South African is in the final, because if it's say hypothetically Lanza versus Munster, which is technically possible, um, if it's Lanza versus Munster, I don't see it getting a massive crowd. Not not that South Africans don't want to watch high quality rugby like that. It's just no, it, nobody it, wants to watch teams uh, uh, completely alien uh, match played. It was Perpignan played whoever it was in the uh, European Cup final in Dublin in the mid-noughties and nobody went to it. It was, I think, 9,000 people at Lansdowne Road or something ridiculous like that. There is a slight difference, though, that um, a lot of the European teams have a lot of South Africans in them, like Dallin de Achies Neyman, Jean Klein, even though he's technically Irish. But yeah, um, like the, the, the lot of South Africa, a lot of the uh, European teams have South Africans in them. So the, the, there is something to, to bring South Africans into those ma- teams. Like though they'll, they'll want to support Damon Dallander, but again, it's not like all of their players are homegrown and they're all like, come on, that's there is a bit of tribalism going on there like Bulls Bulls supporters only support the Bulls okay and uh, Leinster have been winning friends and influencing fans in South Africa by not sending their uh, best players down and then saying no we, we do we do not want the final in South Africa that seems like an unfair thing to happen yeah it, I mean Leo Cullen when uh, his exact words were um, uh, it's a tricky one probably for the final piece you should have that you have to earn the right that would be my opinion so basically he wants the top t- the top uh, ranked team to be at home, be at home, which makes complete sense. Yeah, that's how they that's how they do it in a lot of sports. And uh, maybe maybe just announce at the start of the year the final is going to be here, irrespective of, of the two teams in it. But like, it doesn't. It, I I don't think that it actually makes sense to have neutral and a neutral. Maybe you could do home and away. We see the we see the two legged finals making a, a lot of sense in um, or two legged games making a lot of sense in Europe when the two teams of similar standing. Um, all right, Stephen. So. Uh, uh, Big fans of uh, Leinster in South Africa and no fan of the 20-minute rule. Pretty much, yeah. Stephen Kizzy-Green, thanks very much for that. Cheers, guys.
It's uh, 7.57 this morning here on OTVM. If you want to get in touch with us, you can uh, text us 087-9180-180 is the WhatsApp number. It's competition time here on OTBAM. And to celebrate the end of the race season at Punchestown Festival, and with thanks to Close Brothers, we have two pairs of tickets to give away for next year's festival, sorry, next week's festival, rather, next week, Punchestown. One lucky winner on tomorrow's show will have their tickets upgraded to include lunch for two and B&B at the Louis Fitzgerald Hotel with coach transfer to and from the race course. So who is this iconic Irish jockey and reigning Tipperary person of the year? You know, not even 12 months ago that I was lucky enough to win a Grand National. To be with a chance of winning, just tell us who that mystery voice is to enter. Text in your guest to 087-9180-180. You can tweet at AffTheBallAM or comment wherever you're watching. It's all with thanks to Close Brothers. Two pairs of tickets to give away for next week's uh, Punchestown Festival. At 7.58, Owen Sheehan is with us. Owen. How are you? Very well. Crack. How are you? Good, yeah. Celebrating wildly last night after Arsenal's victory. Yeah, yeah. What a, what a moment. Just when you think you're out. I mean, what, what hap- what's going on here? You didn't call this. No, well, I was just it, it, about how, how prescient you were yesterday, how amazing the, the prediction of the car crash. There, there was there was a, a moment where it looked like maybe Timo Werner had stopped Arsenal getting into the top four, and I was like, all my predictions have come true. I still don't think Arsenal are going to get top four. I still think Tottenham, if you, even if you look at the table, are in the box seat to get it. But on goal difference now, on goal difference now, but Arsenal remember could have been nine points clear at this point had they won those three games, and it wouldn't have even been a conversation. Even if they were like two or three points clear at this stage it would have been uh, a relatively forgivable position but it was just those three fixtures after the international break where you thought right that's a really good opportunity for them to put a bit of daylight between them before Chelsea and United and Spurs come up but turns out they can actually win the game against Chelsea and Manchester United on Saturday like uh, I, I think that the, the table can sometimes lie but I think that what it would tell you is that there's not actually that much of a gap between Arsenal and Manchester United I think everybody has these kind of delusions of grandeur at Manchester United and that's why everybody's you know given out and uh, in, a, in a crazed sense over the Liverpool result but Liverpool pretty much hockeyed Arsenal as well let's not forget so these two teams are in a pretty similar level this is not going to be uh, a similar situation for them on Saturday so I, I, I wouldn't be predicting them uh, to, to, to win the rest of their games at all but they're back in it So even when you're happy you're sad <laughs> It's yeah. It's like it's kind of like drinking pints, really. Knowing I can't that enjoy this. Not knowing that you're going to be hung over tomorrow morning. Yeah, knowing it's that like it's going to be a very, very bad hangover. That great, that's that great bit between the third and fourth point, where everything is great, but you just know that the next one is going to be the one that ruins it. Exactly. That's it's. You're constantly on the third pint, watching Arsenal. It feels that uh, you know it's good. It is good. And last night was great, but this morning the realisation that actually there are there are maybe uh, more disappointments coming down the line but look I, 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 I think that maybe at the end of the season if, if it is a goal difference between Arsenal and Tottenham and Arsenal finish fifth uh, I think at the end of, at the start of the season that would have been an okay outcome at the end that's where they come into fifth um, Nketiah the striker that Arsenal needed all along his first goal in 300 and something days yeah Maybe like the, se- the second goal was quite funny, where like he got dispossessed like three times in the immediate build up to the goal, and it just happened to fall to his feet again. And it was a, a poacher's finish. I like how Lacazette ran to him immediately after the ball hit the back of the net and congratulated him, and he was really really happy with with him getting the goal. It just needs they just need to make a signing there. I don't think Nketiah is going to be that guy. Like if, if he's happy to be a bit par player next season, potentially in Europe as well. If it's going to be Europa League or maybe even Conference League, then uh, I think that could be a role for him. But I think Arsenal need to if they can splash the cash on one player, it's got to be a number nine. Like maybe maybe last night is just the start of his career and and that is the start of the uptick. But I don't think since he's come back to Arsenal, he's kind of he's shown good glimpses, but not glimpses that this is a fellow who can kick you into the top four. Uh, so Arsenal have 57 points Spurs have 57 points Man United have 54 points so obviously if United win at the weekend against Arsenal they would feel like that will give them a glimmer of hope even though they've a game more played than both um, 
Arsenal and Spurs and they're three points behind so you'd have to say that it's uh, odds against for Manchester United at this stage um, and, like Spurs form was so good and then shocking shocking yeah so it's you wouldn't pencil in the uh, jet lagged Harry Kane for the rest of the season you'd have to assume the jet lag wears off at some point hopefully from his perspective from, yeah from your perspective well like I mean, hopefully not like uh, Brentford is uh, like, I mean Brentford smashed Chelsea a couple of weeks ago that's where Tottenham have to go this weekend they obviously have that game against Liverpool and then what could be a showdown against Arsenal that, that's kind of all you're hoping for at the moment even from a neutral perspective is that in a in a month's time that that third last game of the season is actually a top four showdown between Spurs and Arsenal that they, that they are on similar points and whoever wins essentially does take top spot there's a couple of games to play after that but but it's looking like that could be a very very significant uh, just especially because uh, Spurs have to go to Liverpool and I do think Arsenal will drop points before that game so it's 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 hard to know it does feel like Arteta has a heap of credit in the bank with his players there, there was no sense that the, the dressing room had been lost or anything over the last little while and it would have been pretty flaky if it was the case because it was only three games but there was just kind of old failings that kind of were magnified I felt over the last couple of weeks particularly when it came to their potency in front of goal uh, Set up nicely for Arsenal nil Manchester United 2 on Saturday says Joe Yeah it really is it's not though there's no way Man United are coming back from that but you see my point is that you don't actually need to come back from it too much to beat Arsenal that well it's just that it's such a ritual humiliation you know pants taken down ass smacked live on TV again and again and again and again <laughs> like what was their immediate fixture after the 5-0 to Liverpool last time I wonder Look it up there. Talk amongst yourself. Bobby says, Chelsea, an absolute disgrace last night. I haven't seen a performance like that since the days of Bruce Grobler, Hans Seeger, and John Fashnew. Every goal Arsenal scored was Keystone Cop stuff. Ooh, that's uh, flirting with disaster there, Bobby. But, um, I mean, you know, like Chelsea have nothing to play for, right? They're going to finish in the top four. They've just got to keep fit now for the cup final finish the season with a trophy top four amazing achievement from Tuchel and the players to get to that point given uh, the off-field upheaval mm. nil all draw nil all draw I, I think um, well I'm sorry I know Manchester United beat Spurs 3-0 after the 5-0 early in the season <laughs> <laughs> I, I was thinking there was something that there was like some sort of uh, resurgence immediately after the 5-0 the, th- the point here is that Liverpool are an outstanding football team Tottenham and Arsenal are not outstanding and that sometimes it's as simple as that that the gulf between those two teams at the week, uh, in midweek on Tuesday night it will just won't be the same this weekend and they're very similar teams the thing that for Arsenal is actually they would prefer maybe Manchester United were a little bit better but not too much better where they could sit in deep and counter them like they did to Chelsea last night but the thing is Manchester United are just have a level now where actually Arsenal are going to have a decent amount of possession and accidentally accidentally and it doesn't it doesn't really suit them at the moment like it suited them for a while but those three games there's a reason why they lost the three teams who weren't you know three dominant teams in the Premier League or three the teams in the top four is because Arsenal had the initiative and they had to take the initiative and they just they just looked so hapless when they needed to be in control uh, somebody whose uh, username I can't read out I don't think um, says the attendance at the URC games in South Africa are a joke I think that um one of the problems they have is that they've got these amazing stadiums and uh, they would be like very full if it was a 10,000 seater capacity but it's like proper international stadiums and uh, um, it doesn't work no um, no absolutely which actually is one of the stories so Kate McCabe was in the papers and we'll talk about this a little bit later on where she doesn't feel like the right thing to do is to switch stadiums just at the moment and I, I actually agree with it I get the move 
to go to the Aviva but I think do it at the end of this qualifying campaign before the next qualifying campaign starts use this qualifying campaign Tala's a fortress they, they know exactly what to expect don't change things around just yet before we've qualified let's just let's just stick with it yeah like it's it's something that, that they want to do down the line but even in the build up to the Sweden game we were chatting to a few of the players and it was something that I was asking them and, and Rusha Littlejohn was, was of that opinion as well that, or maybe it was Denise O'Sullivan actually saying that Tala is a bit of a fortress for them at the moment that's you know it's, if they want to get a result at home playing in Tala is probably more beneficial to them than playing at the Aviva it's something that they're used to the, the whole place is packed out it's a, it's a pretty good crowd that they get there all the time so that's where they're at at the moment and mid-campaign as you say maybe not the best time competitively to switch but it's got to be something that they've got penciled in in the back of their head for down the line. Like it's it's got to happen, and they, like this team absolutely can make that happen. And like they they could definitely come close to to making the Aviva feel full, if not a complete sellout. They can definitely do that in the next couple of campaigns. Yeah, but let's let's do that in yeah. a pre-planned way where it's like a massive campaign behind it, and everybody understands that this is the thing. But in the meantime, let's just make sure we qualify for the tournament. Uh, the Gibson Park incident could have been a red card for the ball carrier as he was the one who initiated contact not Gibson Park Leinster have earned the right to field who they want by virtue of their position in the table says Fergus yeah that's uh, a one-eyed view of the whole situation there Fergus thanks for that Damien says some red cards are purely accidental a red card spoils the game for the remaining players and the fans and Dieter Meyer says rather than making red card to 20 minutes get an orange card for the accidental challenges and make that 20 minute rule I mean that's a possibility you could have three cards that'll make things a bit more complicated uh, but that might make more sense than what it is but I think anything that's around the head or anything that causes a head injury like you just have to be straight red and and no coming back on no you can't have a player back on in 20 minutes Hmm. tough luck yeah it it, it does seem like people are actually moving towards accepting that at the the moment they're getting the 20 minutes they're trying to they're going to bring it in here yeah like, but, but as kind of like sports viewers and, and as fans it's not something that people have taken too long I think to adjust to the fact that there's a pretty black and white element to this which is getting a knock in the head and, and you're done um, yeah alright OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day don't worry Owen United are absolute trash says David Arsenal have this one in the bag all they have to do is turn up yeah Arsenal love beating trash. Yeah. We're back with uh, former Irish professional cyclist Nicholas Roche right after these. OTB AM. Right, so Pinergy today committed to hashtag Power the Difference for Orwell Wheelers Cycling Club in Dublin as part of a new three-year sponsorship deal with the club. The partnership will see Pinergy become the club's principal sponsor and official energy partner as well as the title sponsors of the Pinergy Orwell Wheelers Randonnée an annual 146km open road event which will take place in Dublin on Saturday, April the 30th. And I'm delighted to be joined by Olympic cyclist and former national road race champion Nicholas Roach. Uh, Nicholas, good morning to you. How are you? Good morning. How are you? Yeah, good. Um, You've recently also taken up a new role with Cycling Ireland. Uh, Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yes. So back in January, I was approached by Cycling Ireland asking me if I wanted to look after initially the the elite men's rail team. So I'll be the the sports director, as they call it, for the Europeans and the World Championships this year. And I will do some appearances with some of the younger guys during the year too. I will, I'm not sure. I think if there is a women team going there to the Worlds, I will also look after them too. Okay. Was that something that was on your radar or was this like completely out of the blue and you're thinking, actually, yeah, I could do that? It was something I always wished I was going to get the phone call the day I retired. And actually, when I retired... I was like, ah, oh, hopefully now someone's going to approach me. And, and it took them a couple of months. But when I get the phone call, I was like, oh, yes, this is great. Uh, it's, I always said publicly that I wanted to get involved with Cycling Ireland and kind of give back my time to, to Cycling Ireland. And when I, when I was initially 
when I got the phone call, Nicholas, are you interested? I said yes straight away. So I, I was really happy. And the, the actual uh, technicalities of the role itself, is that something that you had been thinking about when you were still cycling? It is. Um, I always had it in the back of my mind that, that hopefully um, I could come on board, especially last year, one of my really good friends, Benati, was, uh, was appointed the, um, the, the CT, they call it, in Italy of the national team there. Uh, and I could just see him going to the races and, and getting behind the team and, and everything he was sharing just kind of gave me even more will to become that role in Ireland. My role in Ireland is not as important as his role in Italy. I'll be more focused essentially on the Europeans and the worlds. Um, it's not a, it's not a, we don't have a full international program the same way other bigger nations have. Um, a, cu- a couple of things. Is this something that you'd like to do for a team um, in the professional game as well is 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 that side of cycling something that kind of tactical technical side of trying to build a team and, and be a director sportive is that something that is also in your future so so look initially six months ago I, I was more focused on trying to go into commentary and on tv and then i realized how much i've i've had the opportunity to do it with trinity sports um a few times this year as a sports director with the under 23 team and I absolutely loved it and I'm kind of looking more now into why not go into into World Tour teams um, next year into the, the sports director role. I much prefer the kind of management, logistics and organization role rather than just actually being in the car and kind of directing. I find it very limitating where I kind of like to get involved with the whole bigger picture, but but one kind of goes with the other. So so yeah, it is something that I'm looking that I'm now looking at for for the for the future that I hadn't really ticked a couple of months back. Uh, again, is that like, were, were you one of those cyclists who, when you were on one of the tours, were kind of constantly chatting to the backroom staff going, where are we going to be? What's the hotel like? Uh, you know, or were you literally like compared, uh, interested in nothing except making sure that the uh, tires were pumped, the oil was on the chain and you were ready to go? No, I wasn't quite excessive with the, the oil and the tires were pumped. You kind of have to, you know, there's, you're, you're surrounded uh, hopefully by a bunch of professional um, staff and, and, and you, you do hope that everyone does their job right but I was always very talkative with the staff I find that you know you're you're in a team and a team is not a segregation of, of a group of cyclists and a group of staff a team is a team so even at breakfast if I was um, I'm usually a, an early riser and I'd like to go down and I'd usually sit down and have a coffee with them have a chat talk about things discuss things if it could be Mechanical, it could be about food or just about daily life. But I think it was really important to keep a close relationship with the staff. They may not help you win a race, but it's easy to lose a race when a staff doesn't look after you the way you should. And I think it's very important to want to respect them because they are part as a team, uh, as as a whole. And and I think it just creates a better vibe in the team when you when you look after the staff. But I wouldn't go and and, and double check if my tires were were pumped. I'd kind of ask him in the morning. The pressure and if you'd say if it's 6.8 well that's okay it's 6.8 I wouldn't go and squeeze with my finger to double check his work yeah that's fair enough that's uh, good man management it does sound like you were kind of always at the back of your mind preparing yourself for a life after cycling and and it also strikes me listening to you that you, you had kind of the perfect career to become somebody who is involved at that because you understand pretty much every aspect of it you understand the responsibilities of the team leader but you also understand the responsibilities of the domestique and then the young rider coming through who has pressure on them because They've got to get the contract, and, and you also had a bit of pressure because of who your dad was as well. So it's a, a unique skill set and experience that you will bring to this. Yeah, you've, you've actually summed it up better than I would have. 
Uh, and it's true during my career, I, w- I was lucky enough to to go through the whole the rise of, you know, trying to make it true and, and also trying to, you know, initially when I turned pro, there was always high expectations and it was easier for me to disappoint. And I was always trying to, to prove myself to take it step by step and then going into a young team leader with all the responsibilities to then going into the domestique and then finally finishing um, being really kind of the mentor with the, the young guys in, in, in Team DSM. So I kind of covered the whole the whole circus, and um, and and I've been I've seen the good and the bads. And when I was at domestique, I could understand the what a team leader needed because when I was in that position, I remember when I was a team leader, I remember when the guys did this, and when we rode on this side of the road, and when so I could kind of relate to and anticipate some of the needs of the team leaders. And in the same way, when when the young guys are there, I still remember my fears, like if it was yesterday, and trying to reconfort them and give them a lot of my experience that I had through through the seventeen years. So you know, finishing as a as a as a road captain, as they called it, I think kind of that kind of naturally goes into the role as a sports director because you, when you're a road captain, you're basically a sports director on the road. Is becoming the director sport chief of, of Cycling Ireland a, a, a help then when it comes to actually getting one of those jobs? Because what's that process? It's you know in football we understand that you know unless uh, it's very very unusual for somebody to walk straight into one of the big teams, you kind of have to work your way up. But for you to get into one of the World Tour teams, how how would that actually happen? So um, firstly, I need to go through this um, course, which is in October. So I applied for the course in in, in February. Um, so once I get that, um, that that course validated, then I can access to the World Tour. So you can actually start being a sports director in, in continental level and continental pro level. So the division one and uh, two and three to make it easier to understand. So the World Tour, you need to have this, um, this course validated. Uh, and then obviously, then you have to be sourced by, by one of the teams. So the same way as you, you get approached by, by, by teams as a rider, it's a bit the same um, for, for a sports director. So it's going to be my, my job to kind of make a few phone calls and, and hope someone picks the phone up and, and, and agrees to, one, start talking about a project and, and two, uh, agreeing on a job. And is there is there an assistant sports director role? Or like is there a role that you can take that isn't the big job straight away? Um, no, th- well... There is what will, what they will do is they'll send you on a lighter program uh, and maybe not on the on the world tour level or you'd be a, what they call it a second sports director so a little bit what you were saying now where you'd be sitting in the car next to it and kind of learning process or be and then they'll give you the chance to be a, a sole director on some of the smaller races so um, so there is they don't just throw you in there and you, you drive into Tour de France straight away um, you, you kind of have it's the same way as a rider you just kind of have to build your your profile. And also learn because being, you know, behind the car is one thing, driving behind the race is one thing, but it's all, you know, today there's so much technology available that you spend so much time analyzing um, the terrain now. So you do, you know, all these presentations and PDFs in the morning. It's not like before I remember my, my first races, they come up with a map and they, they draw an arrow for this for where the wind was coming and they draw like a little <laughs> triangle for where the mountains are. Now everything is done with a, a, a program called Velo Viewer and you can access to the to the to, to speed bump and you have to kind of click on that speed bump and say, this, this is the speed bump 500 meters to the line or this roundabout. And, you, and, and there's so much work to do uh, that is not just about telling the guys what tactics they're going to apply to the race. 
It sounds like being a director sportive 20 years ago would have been a way easier job than now. A hundred percent, yeah. <laughs> how, how does it differ then in terms of the, the personalities of some of the people in, in those positions comparing the start of your career to now? Well, today, uh, I believe there's a lot more responsibilities as a sports director. Um, also, because there's also less freedom. There, there is a bigger management setup will, <clears throat> who will actually kind of give you or guide you through some of the goals they will want to achieve during the year, but also race per race. And your, your, your role as a sports director now is also to follow um, what you're told from a higher management um, board, basically, where before I think the sports director had a little bit more freedom in, in what he was doing on the day with the riders he had available. So I think everything has gone more and more controlled. Uh, and as cycling is developing and there's new roles and there's, it's getting more and more professional again, um, you kind of have very, very set and specific roles and every role has his limitations as well. And sports directors has new limitations too. And you have to kind of fit in with the general management's um, tactics, basically. Is there a complicated element that comes with that over a period of time as well, Nico, whereby you've got people who are funding teams who like to have a little bit of control over the team? Like it's something that we would have seen quite a bit in Drive to Survive with regards to Formula One, where team principles would be under the thumb a little bit from certain owners who who were real petrol heads themselves and really wanted to have their say. Is, is that a reality in cycling as well? It is not as much. Uh, I don't know if you remember when I was at a team Tinkoff um, or, 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 or crazy owner Oleg was uh, was a bit like that, and he he liked to have the last say. And you know, there was one day so he he always on the Giro, for example, he'd cycle on the side of the road in the morning uh, and leave the hotel at seven and, and just go and ride his bike. And we'd we'd catch him halfway up the the, the race, and he'd be on the side of the road and he'd jump into one of the the, the team cars. And regardless of the tactics of the morning, sometimes he'd just take the radio in the car and start giving you new orders. And that was his <laughs> way of seeing it. So, so I've, I've had the, the chance to, to have that experience <laughs> to my book too, uh, where, where some of the team owners just completely kind of let the passion um, take, take over their, their actual uh, role of, of a team owner and not a team uh, director and even less a sports director. But, you know, I think... Uh, today, every team has a bit of an identity that most teams um, are, are run with with a management board where the, the owners are are not that much involved apart from two or three different teams. Like I said, I think that the, the most striking one I remember for, was uh, was Tinkoff back in 2014 all the way to 16 or 17. Right. Um, just on this time of year, uh, Nico, the, the, I guess we're coming into kind of nice weather now, but like when you're watching cycling in February, March, I presume now that you're off the saddle, you have no envy whatsoever of people who are in the peloton at, at that point. And it's only now that maybe you start to think, God, I'd like to be out there. Exactly. It's easy in the month of December when it's when it's raining and it's cold and you start looking the first races in January, February. And everyone's wearing leg warmers and crashing and, and mucky faces and just the, the pain. And again, all the stress of the, the, the cycling and, and racing in, in the rain. And then now you look at the videos uh, on TV and it's 20 plus degrees. Uh, the racing starting to look really good again. And I'm kind of saying, ah, you know, that, that's the cycling that I love. I used to love um, from the second part of the year, from, from, from April uh, all the way to August. Those were my kind of favorite months. Uh, so so now and also I I was so 
so taken with the dancing that I kind of was able to kind of step away from cycling. And now that I'm back and I have a bit more time to, to go on the bike. And, you know, last week I was back in inside of France and training with some of my friends who were, who were they were leaving to race this weekend. Um, it does feel sometimes that I, that I, that's like, ah, oh, maybe I could do another year. But obviously, you know, I think that if I went back in the bunch and again, when, when I, all the conditions are perfect, yes, it's enjoyable, but you, you, sometimes I'm just, you know, you look, you always, your memory is very selective. You always remember the mm. good moments and not the tough moments when you're lying on the ground with your, your knees bleeding out and, and a couple of guys sitting on top of you. Was there any event early in the year that was particularly grim routinely? Uh, um, I think at the beginning of the Dance with the Stars, I was still feeling very guilty uh, about not going out training. And I was going out early mornings, in the evenings, doing 10K runs. And, and it was very hard for me to get out of that um, that routine of thinking that I was still a professional cyclist. There was a moment where the dancing became so competitive and I had to really push up my game that I was just too tired to go out on the bike and I had to go out maybe once in, on Monday mornings was kind of be our half rest day. And, and I was able to really, really cut with the whole, I'm not a professional cyclist anymore. Um, but but still, uh, even today, that there, my body still kind of pushes me to go out training. Uh, the identity that you had as a professional cyclist it was very deep-seated, and it sounds like the competition of uh, the dancing was important, but it also sounds like the future career still involved in the sport that you've given your life to is also important for you. Are you feeling now that you're more more you as a person than you were as a cyclist and that you're less the cyclist than you used to be? I think so. I think already the last couple of years of my career, um, when I was realizing that, you know, even in my cycling position, I was able to relax more. As in, when I, when you're a road captain, the pressure is not the same as when you're a team leader. When you're a team leader, sometimes you just have to give so much that you you just pick your battles. You you can't you can't lose energy fighting over everything, and you just kind of have to get on with things sometimes. Um, and, and that's the way of kind of you, you you protect yourself. The the later years of my career, I was able to be more more accessible in in many ways, and also express myself. Uh, because I could actually go and, and challenge and I could actually go and give a stronger opinion. Um, now that I'm completely out of cycling, again, when I'm commentating, it's easier for me to, to be able to give an opinion and also because you actually see more when you're outside the cycling bubble than when you're stuck in it. Is that advice that you can then use when you're in your role with Ireland to the cyclists? Cause like some of our cyclists at the moment are doing absolutely incredible and, and they probably still are in that bubble. Like, is that wisdom that you have acquired that you can impart now to them i certainly hope so and i think um i think with with cycling Ireland appointing me um sports director they they were hoping i would do that and i certainly hope that i can bring as much uh help advice um on, on different aspects and you know even in, in cycling but also out of cycling i've had a quite um quite, quite a ups and downs in my in my private life too so you know, there's obviously it's it's always easy to give advice, but it's just you 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 know I've lived in I think six countries now, um, went through divorces, divorce one's enough, uh, but all these other things kind of help with you know even how to to help out with with taxes, um, to to move to one place, move to the other place, 
I've I've had quite some some knowledge I could share because cycling is great, and you can talk about diet and training and uh, and go and um, on racing all you want. But cycling is also you have to take care of all the rest about you know physios, um, nutritionist, uh, everything can kind of click, and there's a lot of information and a lot of things to to do and to look after. Uh, the other thing, and, and we talked a little bit about it, was the pressure of expectation because of your name. I, I think, like, so Sam Bennett exploded into the Irish sports consciousness over the last couple of years as well. Like, you, you do know what it's like to be high profile in a way that uh, not a lot of cyclists have had to deal with. Essentially since your dad's era when everything that your dad and Sean Kelly did was front page news all the time. There was like a pack of Irish journalists following them at the time. They were on TV all the time. They were on radio all the time. And then there was a a massive lull. And then yourself and your cousin uh, kind of re-established Irish interest in cycling. And then Sam took it to the next level by winning the the green jersey. And, you know, I I don't know if that generation, that next generation of cyclists, Hopefully they will get the coverage and the coverage will continue, but it's not an easy thing to deal with, I suspect. No, it's not. It's not easy. Uh, and look, what what Sam did to win the green jersey uh, was absolutely uh, fantastic. And and just by winning the stages already in the Giro without even going to the Tour, which was which was which is humongous. But the stages he won in the Tour the previous year in, in the Giro the previous year was it four stages in the Giro. That was like wow. We had no one had. I've been capable of doing that since, since I don't even think Kelly won four stages in, in one single um, Grand Tour, and then the year after getting in the green jersey. What I what I what I feel um, today is unfortunately with, with with Sam having his his issues with his knee, the kind of hype that he was, that was about to explode again in Ireland kind of went down with his knee issue, um, and unfortunately. I think everyone's kind of waiting for Sam to come back to, to his top level uh, and to go and get those really, really important big wins in cycling. We can see Eddie, who is just there and about, always, you know, he's, he's won his first uh, overall race a couple of weeks ago in Italy. He's doing actually very well at the moment in um, in in Italy again, actually, <laughs> uh, in Tour de Alps, it's called. So Eddie is there. The, the thing is, obviously, when you have the green jersey, uh, of the Tour de France again is is next is really really next level. Eddie now is fighting with like if I was myself or or, or Dan, but you know even Ryan Mullen is he's you know the underdog he might not be as popular uh, or in the media uh, as the other two, but he's there knocking bells. Had a pretty good classic um, season so far, so it's just hopefully that Sam comes back up and and start winning those races more often like he did uh, the last couple of years, and I think it will kick kick off again because cycling has generally exploded since since post covid or actually during covid and then, and although this kind of new uh cyclists are not really interested in racing they they like to go they discovered cycling to go and take a better fresh air get out of the house when you've been locked in for so long they're not really interested in racing yet but i think there is some potential of being um kind of new cycling fans or just kind of following a little bit more what is happening in the cycling world because they enjoy being on the bike and it kind of one will click into the other yeah i I think that's true i think that um owen mentioned drive to survive cycling is really set up for a a drive to survive where we get the ins and outs of the crazy owners and the the egotistical team leaders and the domestiques and the road captains It's, it's the perfect sport for it is and and you know I from what I understand I think the Tour de France signed with Netflix now, 
Uh, and uh, again, like I, I absolutely love Drive to Survive and, you know, living in Monaco for, for over 10 years, I, I've been with some of the former Formula One drivers. I was more friendly with the older generation, like David Coulthard. Uh, and we go out on the bike and we, we talk cars and and obviously he's quite involved with the Formula One and, and I've always kind of followed it from from afar. But but I just like many people just fat, fat in love with the show. And, and it just is so interesting. It's, it's almost like a Hollywood movie rather than uh, than than a reality um, series. And I think that if cycling are courageous enough to really go into um, the conflicts and you know we don't want to see everybody hugging each other and telling how brilliant they are that, w- that would be terrifyingly boring <laughs> Where and, and also untrue I think why Drive to Survive works is because you can actually feel that they're not all best buddies uh, and sometimes I feel in the cycling world you, they want to make you feel that you always love and hug and shake hands and it's great but it's not always like that there is competition you're, you're there to beat the other guy and you can have respect uh, don't take you know you can be competitive and have respect one doesn't go without the other uh, but um, but 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 not everyone is friends and it would be good if they do really open up into those tensions and people talk freely uh, rather than always trying to be kind of very socially correct Who's the member of the peloton that you would be most looking forward to seeing getting the inside track on on Netflix? I don't know, actually. That's also one of the things that will make um, this very complicated. Is if you look at it as a whole, like the Tour de France is 190 cyclists, it's not 20 pilots, so it's a lot more difficult to go into who do you talk to, and I think sometimes. You know, again, when you're a team leader, all that you, you kind of have to be in your bubble and you isolate yourself. And and I think sometimes it would be almost more interesting to go into someone who is maybe not as famous, who is doing his first Tour de France, who is struggling, rather than going for the first kind of top ten in GC and a few top sprinters there, and going again, developing the the kind of faces that we know that speak every weekend in in the media. I think it would be a lot more interesting if they actually went into some of the the newer riders or again riders who are suffering or riders who just had a crash uh, and who are kind of who are more like I said maybe not me- mediatically interesting because they're not the highest profile but they might have you know easier ways to communicate um, one last thing you, you talked there about the uh, increase in cycling myself and I want to both uh, dabble a little bit uh, particularly since Covid it's generous to us uh, a little bit generous to us uh, <coughs> do you feel that though generally that um, particularly in Ireland that like we, we have this very rich tradition of cycling that like goes way 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 back uh, and it, it feels a little bit like the sport is kind of rising again but that it's going to need a concerted effort and a very unified front and every opportunity that we have to talk about it and to push it and particularly just the safety aspect of it for for uh, for us uh, for uh, the amateur cyclists and for parents getting their kids into it like that's another big thing that we could all do with a significant push on Oh, I, I 100% agree with you uh, and you know when I when I, I in Ireland I, I I'm always kind of busy so I do drive as well and and I do see sometimes you know it is difficult to to overtake there's no room to overtake a cyclist and you have to be very patient which not everybody uh, has that, that that skill but also even in the city center I, I found that some of the the, the lanes. Uh, you know, you, you suddenly arrive and there's a pole just in the middle and you don't know where it's coming from. Um, and, and it is, safety is 
it is a preoccupation and you know i mean it, it's what i appreciate it it's great to see a lot of people wearing kind of high-vis colored clothing and and also lights i think lights are, are key especially here in ireland um the rear light but I, I even wore the the headlight here when i was back in the winter just because the light was so was so low but but obviously helmet is 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 essential uh, i wouldn't go out without without a helmet but again, I think traffic, especially coming towards the centre, is, is is very very um, dangerous, and, and you just need to be always always cautious. And as, as you know, there's so much that can happen that you cannot control. But I think that there's no chance to kind of not not be cautious. But but it is a main preoccupation. And and look, I'm I'm lucky enough to be here in in, in Dundrum and just shoot out into the Wicklow Mountains, and I'm kind of way out of traffic. Um, but but I, I know that when you're kind of close to to a town center it could be quite sketchy and, and it is a major preoccupation yeah do, do you feel look, there, there is a lot of um new greenways aren't there being being built around ireland and uh, i think that's very encouraging though for sure do, do you feel it's, it's less safe to, to cycle around dublin city compared to say cities in in, in france belgium netherlands no, to, in fairness, uh, I, I think cycling in cities, as much as is being promoted and, and pushed by politics and, and every government, and, and they are trying to create um, all these new accesses. Um, unfortunately, I think the older cities is just more difficult because um, usually they're, they're just narrower and there's no space to have a bus lane, a cycle lane, a e-scooter lane, a car lane, and a taxi lane when. <laughs> has been two lanes for 50 years and you're trying to make four lanes out of two lanes basically so i think they are um they are conflicted with with, with some some historical issues where more modern cities or newer cities um when they are growing or developing in more in modern areas it's easier to to think ahead and to put a proper bike lane there or a proper bus lane there which kind of makes it safer but look I, i've i've cycled in in most um countries and major cities and unfortunately the the, the problem of, of cycling lane is a big 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 issue in, in all of them Nico great to have you with us this morning best of luck with the new gig and thanks a million thanks a million that's uh, Nico Roach there he's happened to promote um, the fact that Penergy have been today announced as the uh, main sponsors for the Orwell Wheelers Cycling Club it's a three year sponsorship deal uh, they'll become the club's principal sponsor and official energy partner, as well as the title sponsors of the Pinergy Orwell Wheelers Randonnée, which is an annual 146-kilometre open road event, which takes place in Dublin on Saturday, April the 30th. That's nine days to get ready for 146k. Could you do it? Yeah, of course. Yeah. How far could you go? I could. I could probably. I could probably push myself to 70, 75 now. Could you? Yeah. That was quick. Yeah. It's amazing how quickly it does. I, I haven't done that now, but I've done. I've done 50, and I haven't. I didn't feel bad after 50 at the weekend at all I could have kept going wow um, but you're a dark horse uh, no like climbs it was on a greenway you see that's that doesn't count a, gre- a greenway 50 is like an, a regular roads 35 maybe I don't know it's a, I mean I'm very impressed considering you know where you've come from I don't I don't think I've gone very far at all you haven't seen my times you don't know how long it took me I mean the fact that you finished it that's all that matters yeah it's not a race uh, certainly felt like one <laughs> <laughs> 0879180180 is the WhatsApp number. If you want to get in touch, you can uh, leave a comment on the YouTube stream. Uh, you can also use the hashtag OTBAM. And OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. You just don't know what Arsenal team are going to show up, says 91 Devo. 
United were in very poor form the last game against them in December and still managed to win. There's no consistency with Arsenal. I mean, this is true. I mean, it's kind of it's weird because there is consistency. When they're good, they're good for a while, and when they're bad, they're bad for a while. So maybe they're entering a good for a while phase. Yeah, and it does feel that there's been kind of like more reliability about them this season. But like you're coming from an extremely low base to, to say that Arsenal are unreliable this season is not to, to say that they haven't made progress. It's just that it, it, it was ever thus uh, with, with Arsenal. Like what, what the most encouraging thing from them is who performed well last night. And one of those players was was obviously Enketia, who you mentioned, and El Neni in midfield. Uh, I don't think either of those players are, are Champions League quality, but if they can somehow put in. 8 out of 10 performances between now and the end of the season which isn't unthinkable it's only 6 games then they might be able to snatch it but they would be overperforming I would suggest compared to some of the quality well, that and, they probably and, have and think how big a moment it would be it would set Spurs back which would be very yeah. important in the in the long term it would offer them Champions League football and put them into a sphere where the striker at Benfica only wants to play Champions League football next season it's like well come to us yeah. you know like it, That's it. it's transformative so big 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 month and if they don't then obviously Tottenham are Champions League football. Uh, they still have Conte and Manchester United. Maybe, maybe next year is the year where well, Manchester United will still be able to attract better players than Arsenal in the summer if they're both not in the Champions League. So I, I think that it is the stakes are pretty high. To be fair, they really are. All right, to celebrate the end of the race season at Punchestown Festival, and with thanks to Close Brothers, we've two pairs of tickets to give away for next week's festival. One lucky winner on tomorrow's show will have their tickets upgraded to include lunch for two and B and B at the Louis Fitzgerald Hotel with coach transfer to and from the race course. Punchestown is always a great few days out. Um, all you got to do is identify a mystery voice this morning. Who is this iconic Irish jockey and reigning Tipperary Person of the Year? You know. Not even 12 months ago that I was lucky enough to win a Grand National. Uh, just tell us who she is and text your answer to 087-918-180 or you can tweet us at Off the Ball AM or you can comment wherever you're watching. I suspect she's going to be the uh, repeat Tipperary Person of the Year. Not very like Tipperary to go back to back, is it? <laughs> Zing. There you go. Time for the papers. There are so many idiots out there, so many spoofers. There's a lot of horse. I think he's a total spoofer. What do you mean a spoofer? He's a bullshit. Ah, no, Emma, come on, don't, don't be, no, I'm not, yes. no. All right, we can start with uh, otpsports.com. They just don't know what they're doing, says Mark Lawrence on Manchester United. It's true, you don't know what you're doing. They sing, and it's true. Uh, some messages are harder to get across than others. This is coaching at bad tackling technique. It's Andy Dunn in the show last night. Uh, Waterford have sacked Ian, Man- Ian Morris, their manager. Um, uh, Munster have signed Irish qualified centre Antoine Frisch from Bristol. I see some people giving out about that on Twitter, but if you're signing qualified Irish qualified players, if they're good enough... If, there's, if this is a mediocre, no good player who's going to just clog up an opportunity, then that's no good. But if it's somebody who's actually going to make it to the Ireland squad, uh, fair play um, and if, if it represents value. Uh, back page of the Irish Independent, Tipperary coach Dunn facing three-month ban. This is Tommy Dunn, who was yellow-carded and then red-carded after a verbal altercation, it says, from Colin Keyes here. Um, uh, Colin Bonner says he was a huge loss on the sideline, huge energy and has a big voice. So... Let's just let's just right. You, you a bit of jaw jaw. Three months wrestling somebody by the neck to the ground. No, no, that's you're not you're not getting banned for that. Are we are we sure about this? Are we? Is this? Uh, I wonder if part of it is like uh, the arguments that are made in those hearings where it's like, ah, oh, should a poor fella? He's only a young fella. He's going to miss the game that he's trained so hard for. Actually, when it comes to uh, sideline staff, that actually they are 
the book does routinely get thrown at them. Like, I mean, you picture Davy up in his corporate box at Wexford Park or wherever it was. Um, maybe that was when he was Clare manager. Actually, I just can't remember. And, and there's there been notable other instances as well where where managers have been sent off or have got bans. It's the players who who often get off easier. And like I mean, the sport is all about the players. You can see why people might have a soft spot for them. But I think it maybe is a is a different thing. And I think that the arguments are a slight bit different. But I'd be interested to hear what was actually said. Uh, Bridge of highs. Arsenal stun Blues to reignite top four bids. That's the front page of the Examiner. And uh, they're still talking about the Limerick-Cork match, obviously. Uh, Roy Keane. Keane reduced the role of pining for former glories. The headline on Dan McDonald's piece at the back of the Herald. Uh, Hurt Pogba set to walk away. Midfielder ready to call it quits as United limp from one crisis to another. He's not showing up for the rest of the season is the implication of the headline. Uh, it's a knockout. Uh, MTK Global to shut down after unfair scrutiny. So the company is gone at the end of the month. Selling out Tala, the priority for McCabe. That's Katie McCabe. We'll hear a clip of that in a while. Phil Steam ahead. It's Phil Foden who scored the third last night, was it? Uh, so the second goal um, of their 3 0 win last night. And they're now top of the table by a point from Liverpool after a relatively routine 3 0 win against Brighton. And then Gunners Ed in right direction. Uh, Champ Hughes joins the Elite 200 club. Our man and champion jockey like Brian Hughes celebrates with Wayne Room colleagues after becoming only the fourth jump jockey ever to ride 200 winners in one British season at Perth yesterday. So, uh, Irish jockey's best in the world. Uh, Kinnahan's gone bout of business is the front page headline on the Daily Mirror, which is tab of the morning to you. And Mavels, City turn heat back on Klopp as they go top uh, with a ruthless victory. So, uh, Riyad Mahrez, underrated. I put it to you. By who? Well, everybody. It's like when, when you're listing off the superstars at Man City, people go De Bruyne, Foden. Earlier in the season, it was Silva. Now it's um, Maris. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. I, I, but I, I don't think this... I, no, I think that people appreciate the fact that he is in a collection of Manchester City's best 15 players and everybody accepts that that's the level of depth that you have. Like... I mean, well, this would be interesting. Who, who do you rather have in your squad? Diogo Jota or Riyad Mahrez is, is probably the comparison there. Who actually is... If we're accepting that, that Luis Diaz, Mane and Salah is Liverpool's front three, then Jota is your first man off the bench. There's, who, who, does Man, who does Pep start in a Champions League final if they get there, for example? There's a chance he does start Mahrez, to be fair. I think he does, yeah. Um, yeah, so maybe the comparison actually isn't the same. Maybe it's Luis Diaz versus Riyad Mahrez is the actual comparison there. Who, who would you rather have in your team? Well, I'd rather have Mahrez at the moment, you know? Yeah, like, I think he's absolutely in, in that same conversation. Like, do, do we put Luis Diaz and Jada on a pedestal above Riyad Mahrez? I'm not sure we actually do. Like, I mean, Mahrez was part of uh, the one of the biggest fairy tales in Premier League history and, and deservedly got his move and has... It's an incredible career. Yeah, and like so, some of his... Um, some of the goals that he scored over the last couple of years have been absolutely outstanding. I, th- I actually think he's correctly rated. Maybe my my question initially was like maybe is he underrated by Pep himself? I don't think so. I think Pep loves him. Djokovic and Navratilova lead angry backlash to Wimbledon player ban. So the uh, Russian players and Belarusian players are going to be banned from Wimbledon. And uh, MTK Boxing Company, founded by Kinahan Folds, the back page headline on the Guardian today, where a story of Donald Craze is headlined that way. Uh, right, uh, Will Callan's with us. Will, good morning to you. Morning, lads. How are you getting on? What's going on? Uh, Riyad Mahrez is a nailed-on starter if Man City gets to the Champions League final, by the way. I think so, too. Yeah, I think Mahrez is their right attacking midfielder now. I think he's 100% going to start there. Bernardo Silva play a little bit deeper. He's in the top five players in the Premier League. 
Mm, yeah, I think so. I think on form this season, he definitely is. Like, for me, probably Joe Cancelo has been the underrated Man City player this year for everything he can give off either wing. He can play slightly further in field. He's been hugely creative for them. And Rodri has been brilliant in midfield. I think he's probably an outside shout for player of the year. But the only thing is they generally will go for attacking players. So Bernardo Silva... Uh, Mo Salah and Mares are probably going to be the three players in contention at the end of it. De Bruyne. Why, why did he start against Liverpool? Why didn't he? In the Premier League. Um, I suppose horses for courses. Plus, as well, they had played the game midweek in the Champions League against Man City, so he made. Let it go. But if, yeah. it's, if it's Liverpool in the Champions League final, if it's Liverpool in the Champions League final, then it's horses for courses. Well, like, be, I, I don't know. I think. Oh, no, I think. I think he'd start. I think if it's a fist. Did you not see that they had seventy-six physio appointments afterwards with the physios whose job it was to do physio? Fit, oh, was yeah. a, he wasn't fully fit. Well, maybe he was. I don't know. That was it. But, yeah. Not rather yeah, no, than no, he did. He Jamie did make changes because of the game against Atletico during the week that week. Like he made seven changes. I did think it was whining. It was like, oh, well, my players needed treatment after the game. Well, I mean, they get treatment every day anyway from the physio. So, like, stop whining. Yeah. Yeah, he didn't. Tough, tough yeah. luck as well. If you're going for the Champions League and you're going for the Premier League, you're going to ship yeah. injuries and you're going to ship fatigue. So yeah, I agree. He's got I, just, I just think there's a random Jesus-shaped curveball coming when Pep Guardiola doesn't have to really throw his curveball I mean, in the might Champions be. League final. I might, That's or, all I'm saying. Or against Real Madrid. Predictions yesterday on the show that uh, David Myler was like, ah, "No, he's going to get into his own head against Real Madrid." I mean, if Real Madrid were to knock him out this time when he's got the best team in Europe. That would we be. I remember Eric Garcia against Lyon, which mm. came absolutely out of nowhere. Like Pep makes these decisions sometimes at big games, and Dani Alves up front against Real Madrid when he was Barcelona manager a few years back as well. He, you never know with Pep, but he does like. I'll admit, take Owen's point entirely. He likes Gabriel Jesus in some big games, but I think surely if he's gone out in a Champions League final, Riyad Mahrez is a nailed-on starter. Yeah, I would think. All right, what else you got for us? Well, City are back top of the Premier League by a single point after that 3-0 win. They had to wait to break Brighton down in the second half. took 60 minutes to break their resistance, but then won 3-0. So they're a point ahead of Liverpool now. There's six games left in the title race. Arsenal level on points with four plays Tottenham thanks to their 4-2 win away to Chelsea. Elsewhere, we've got Everton four points clear of the relegation zone. Richarlison with a very late equaliser for Frank Lampard's side in that one-all draw, which they picked up last evening against Leicester. Burnley will have the chance to reduce the gap back to one point if they can beat Southampton tonight. It's the first time in a decade that Burnley would play a league game without Sean Dyche as their manager. Last night's other match saw Newcastle continue their resurgence with a 1-0 win against Crystal Palace and it is the first time that Newcastle have won six home games in a row in some 18 years. Sligo have claimed their maiden airgrid Connacht under-20 football title. Jack Davitt scored two goals in the first half and then Owen Smith and Jack Lavin scored late goals as they edged out Mayo at Markovich Park by 4-4 to one goal and 12 points. Limerick will have home advantage for their Munster under-20 hurling semi-final against Water for next week. The Shannon Siders topped Group 1 following a 125-119 to win against Cork at Porky Rin. Waterford booked their place in the last four. 17-point victory against Kerry in Dungarvan and the other semi-final will now be Tipperary at home against Cork at Semple Stadium. The reigning All-Ireland champions awfully continue their defence of the Leinster under-20 football title this evening. Declan Kelly's side will host Kildare in the semi-finals of Borden Mono O'Connor Park. The other game in the last four this evening is a derby at Parnell between Dublin and Mead. Mead star Vicky Wall, by the way, says she has not yet signed for an AFL 
OW club. The All-Ireland Ladies Football Championship winner admits she has interest in playing in Australia, but says her current focus is on the Royals. Wall says she has spoken to a number of clubs, but has yet to agree a contract with any of them. As you mentioned, across some of the back pages, the world's tennis number one, Novak Djokovic, leading calls at the moment against Wimbledon, saying the decision to ban Russian and Belarusian players is crazy. The Grand Slam has become the first tournament to prevent individuals competing from the two countries following the invasion of Ukraine. Djokovic has joined the ATP and WTA tours and criticising the All England Club, saying the politics shouldn't be interfering with sport. In snooker, Kyron Wilson got past former world number one Ding Junhui last night by 10 frames to 8. He's into the second round at the World Snooker Championship. Joe Trump will resume three frames up when he goes up against Iran's Hossein Jafai this morning. The next stage kicks off at lunchtime. Mark Williams will start his match against fellow Welshman Jackson Page, which is the first match of round two. All right, Will, good stuff. Thanks very much for that. Uh, that's Will O'Callaghan. More from Will across the day, of course, on otbsports.com. It is 8.51 this morning. And uh, check out this week's edition of the Hurling Pod 2 for more uh, Will goodness. Uh, now, let's turn our attention to the weekend's Gaelic football action. I'm delighted to say Colin Boyle is with us. Colin, good morning to you. Morning, lads. How are you? It seems a little bit early in the year for us to be talking about uh, Galway Mayo, but here we are. Um, what are the levels of excitement like uh, where you are at the moment about the game this weekend? Yeah, well, it's been one we've been all talking to, all talking about, should I say, even throughout every league game we've referenced April 24th. This is what it's all about. This is what they're all building on uh, or towards. I think it's been the same for both counties throughout the league. So the last three weeks have, have gone by probably a bit slowly and, and here we are. We're, we're ready to go. Yeah, no, things are building nicely. Um, the the atmosphere is building, you could say. The anticipation is building and you know, all the talk from the kind of Mayo side is who's available and I suppose that's probably the most frustrating thing about not being a player anymore is that I simply don't know uh, or don't know for sure uh, who's available for the for this weekend or not from, from a Mayo point of view and, and even from a Galway point of view so yeah it's it's strange in that way yeah but uh, no it's looking now to look forward to definitely The big debate on the football pod this week Paddy Andrews is like you, you start Killian if he's fit for half an hour you start him because the game could be over they could they could win the game in that first half hour James Adonis was like no 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 you bring him off the bench think of the think of how mad the crowd will go when Killian is there doing his little warm up on the sideline and it's like yeah oh, come on and I'm like I see both sides of this I don't know how to make that decision yeah look at my, my gut is that he won't start and again that's not going on Anthony I know it's just that he's come back from a horrific injury um, nobody knows how the three, last three weeks have gone from okay he played the last 20 minutes against Kerry uh, my gut is that it's going to be James Carr, Jason Doherty and Ryan O'Donoghue in an inside three and Carr and Doherty in particular are going to be told eat into yourself for 45, 40, 45 minutes and Killian's coming in then um, to, to finish the to finish the job hopefully from a Mayo point of view. That's my gut. I could be wrong. I'd, I'd love to see Killian start but I just don't. I think it could be too early in that process yet. You, you saw Throne last year with Colin McShane after coming back from a really, really serious injury how they held him in reserve and how it worked for them uh, yet have to say throughout the championship uh, but definitely with this being so early still in his comeback I, th- I think more than likely we won't see an impact off the bench uh, from Killian the, the McShane comparison is really interesting because it did feel last year as soon as he got one game it was like well he's going to be a starter now because he's Colin McShane mm-hmm. and actually they were smart about it and one of them the All-Ireland I guess in the end certainly got him out of a few tricky situations on the way so could that actually be the future for Killian O'Connor this year if they get through this weekend and he's, he's managing to make a huge impact for half an hour or whatever it may be Exactly. And look, you mentioned Carl there. Like, nobody knows. Like, Carl McShane was coming on. The Cavan was first game they played last year and he played 20, 25 minutes. You just don't know. He might have been able to train for a week after that. He could have been sore. And that could have been the kind of routine all the way through the championship. And you just don't know with 
with lads coming back from injuries because they have to be minded because it's not even just the, the injury itself it's every other part of the body and I kind of know that myself from, from coming back from injury it's everything else that nearly starts to ache and get sore from that so it's it, it's going to be interesting to see like hopefully the last three weeks as I said have gone really well from and that will leave him in, in a good place coming into Sunday and again if he starts I, I'd love to see it but I think more than likely uh, we're going to see that uh, as Jared mentioned there that war maybe 20, 20 25 minutes to go that he's going to have to pitch there's obviously been a lot of talk about Mayo and how much to read into their league final performance at the end. I think the consensus is that you can't really read too much into it. What about Galway on the same day? Beaten, took a late lead and ended up surrendering it again against Roscommon. Did they go a little bit more all out against against Roscommon that day than Mayo did against Kerry? It's very hard to know. Like I was at that game, it was such a flat game. It was so flat, like similar, I suppose, to Division 1 final. Um, it's so hard to know how... how really hard they went for it or how hard should I say training have been in a couple of weeks up to that I think the one game if I was if I was James Horn, and I was looking at Galway the one game I'd probably look at in more detail would be in the Derry game up there because it was a game they really really had to win and it was a game they were on the road obviously um, and they were really really good that day now it was, it was poor conditions it was tough conditions but uh, like I was shocked how, how poor they made Derry look um, a, a Derry team that a lot of people were talking about as uh, potential Ulster contenders so that's probably the game I'd nearly take more heat to. I'm not sure in the two Roscommon games after that how much, certainly the final week was a dead rubber for Galway and even the league final. Again, I'm not sure how much you can read, read into even though I think obviously again the Corridors would have preferred to win. But if I was looking at Anthony, I'd nearly be looking more at that Derry game and how really uh, ruthlessly they went about uh, dismantling Derry in that first half. The game was over at halftime. Uh, from a defensive matchup perspective, what do you do with Shane Walsh and what do you think will happen what do I think will happen well normally Shane Walsh against Mayo over the last number of years he plays that bit deeper uh, rather than playing in, in a centre forward position or in the half forward and he usually plays as one of the two inside or a third man just coming slightly deeper maybe to the top of the D I think that's more he knows it's going to be a Lee Keegan it's, it's going to be a Paddy Durkin normally picking him up so it's the manager or whoever it is is generally protecting him going back the pitch um, and making it that bit harder for the man picking it up and maybe getting defenders like Paddy Durkin into situations where they're, you know, they're probably more comfortable out the pitch. Again, look, I talked about injuries are on. I don't know who's going to play on Sunday. I don't know if, if Paddy Durkin is fit, if Oshie Mullins is fit. If, if, if everyone is fit, I think it probably will be Oshie that picks him up. Um, and like I said, I think Walsh and Comer more likely will line up inside together as a, as a two and what I can see happening is Galway trying to flood bodies back, trying to frustrate Mayo more so than they would have done over the last two years. Um, I, I don't think he's going to want to take them on in a kind of head-to-head battle in a nearly tennis match up and down the pitch because I, I don't think Galway had the, had the middle third players to, to match Mayo if, if Mayo have everyone fit in that regards, definitely from a, from a physical point of view and an athletic point of view. So I think he'll try and create that space for the likes of Washington Comer by filtering a load of players back looking to frustrate Mayo and if they get turners up, turnovers on them two or three quick quick kick passes into the space inside something like you would have seen Kerry have got the, the space that, that's something they'll be looking to create definitely on Sunday It's obviously a new championship structure with the Talton Cup and, and uh, going through the back door is not going to be the safe passage that it has been for teams in recent years there's, there's no gimmies there's no kind of warm-up matches there's nothing against the Division 4 team who like half their players have gone to America it's going to be against a good quality Division 2 team if you lose this 
potentially or maybe one of the best teams in Ulster who knows like it's Tyrone or Donegal will be floating around that draw um, when it gets made uh, as a result of that this game has quite a lot on it it's not like one of those games you can go we'll be grand we'll we'll go through the back door and we'll lick our wounds we'll be fine so uh, with that in mind does that change anyway the 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 thinking the arithmetic and, and how you go for this or or is that to be parked entirely and the game needs to take on its own life yeah I think you just need to park it I think you just need to treat it as it's been the last two years that it's knocked out and you just have to simply go for it um, like I said from a Mayo point of view they, you know the qualifiers it, it's you lose against Galway and like you said you could be playing Armagh you could be playing a Tyrone or a, you know a Derry someone like that from Munster a really tough team from Munster so it's somewhere you don't want to be but otherwise you, you get that win on Sunday and you're into a kind of final you're one step away from from an Iron quarter final and being back in Coe Park and an Iron series so that, like that's a huge a huge prize on offer for both teams on Sunday and it's, look, it's the same for Galway obviously I, th- I think for Galway for, for Paul Joyce you know third year in charge now uh, he's looking for that one big win he's been waiting for the last couple of years it hasn't come yet so there, there is huge pressure on, on him obviously and on this Galway team coming coming to Casabar on Sunday but look at with it being in Casabar with it being away from home might actually suit them might actually take a bit of pressure on them put a bit more focus on Mayo and and look at they've been looking to come down I think the last two times they came to Casabar uh, 16 and 18 I think they, they won on, on both occasions um, so look at they, they have a good record in the last couple of years there and they'll be looking to to take that into Sunday are you worried? I, 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 like honestly, Jar, I think it's a fifty-fifty game. I, I really do. I don't think it's, it's any more than that on, on either side. Um, and that's not me talking Mayo down or talking Galway up. I, I just generally think that's the way it is when you when you when you take into the fact it's so early in the year. Like people will reference the the game in Crow Park last year as a, as a bit of a gap between both teams. Like it's a world apart from that April in Mikhail Park. It's a world apart from a, a roast on hot day in July in, in Crow Park. It, it'll be a completely different game. And even in that game itself, Galway, you know, were the better team for 35, 40 minutes. And Mayo, it was only really from the 50th minute on that Mayo got in front. And people probably look at that game a lot differently than it, than it actually was. So I, this is, to me, it's a 50-50 game. 50-50 game. It's going to come down the stretch. And I'm hoping a Mayo bench with the likes of Killian O'Connor, with the likes of Kevin and possibly coming off that may be enough to, to put it in Mayo's favour. How did playing Galway in the 2018 era under Kevin Walsh differ to playing them under Power Joyce? I, I think it's kind of what I've already said with regards Walsh generally set up defensive um, and, and it worked very well for them against us. I don't think it did much for them after that um, in regards against other teams but against us it frustrated us there's no doubt about it and I can see as much as Bar Joyce don't, doesn't want to go into that kind of area where he's getting a load of bodies back behind the ball I think that's what's going to happen on Sunday I think if he, if he looks at Mayo's league performances against the likes of even in Armagh which they bet Armagh were very defensive frustrated Mayo for long periods of the game Tyrone same thing frustrated them for, for long periods of the game I think that's what Bar Joyce is going to be looking at and taking little things from Kevin Walsh's game plans like they used to concede the kick-out an awful lot against us. They used to let us have the, our own kick-out, let us carry it out to, to maybe halfway and then start to put pressure on us. It would be very interesting to see, especially with more than likely Roy Byrne on Sunday, will they try and target him? Will they try and go press high for kick-outs or will they be letting Mayo have the ball, letting it carry it out to a certain point and then putting the pressure on, looking to frustrate and looking to turn over then? So, yeah, look at it. It's, it's um, Paul Joyce generally has been more 
should we say, attacking a bit more open in, in, in the way they play. And look, they've had very varying degrees of success. The one thing I would say is that obviously with Fulham, they haven't once, you know, we've beaten them the last two years. They haven't had a chance then to gather themselves and go for it into the qualifiers. So you would be expecting to see definitely a longer run in the championship for Galway this year, either way, regardless of the result on Sunday. Yeah, I think the game hinged. I mean, sorry, Mayo obviously were excellent in the second half and kind of gave a full expression to their true identity. But at the same time, uh, there were fairly significant injuries for Galway in that first 40 minutes as well that maybe are underrated when it comes to us uh, looking back. And and the previous year, as as Owen has said on the show this week already, there was a a point in it basically in the howling conditions in in wintertime for that championship. And if Galway had won that, they would have ended up playing Tipperary in an All-Ireland semi-final. So, like, uh, (laughs) I'd say when... Porrick Joyce as a manager goes to bed his nightmares are all about this Mayo team so their motivation is very very strong and as you've said there's been times in the past where they've gone in as underdogs in this game and randomly just been able to beat you guys Yeah absolutely and look at Porrick Joyce he doesn't need to get any motivation to play Mayo I'm sure uh, it's a game he's going to be well well up for and obviously there's a keen O'Neill factor there as well obviously Keane was with Mayo and with James for a year in particular back in 2012 obviously He's now with Galway, so there's all that to factor in as well. And look, I think Galway are going to come down with the game plan, like I said, to really just look to, to ambush Mayo and to 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 frustrate and to to take their goal chances when they're on. I think that's the big thing. I think when there's a when there's a when there's a glint of a goal chance, they're going to go for it with Comer and Watch and whatever else it may be. I think it'd be interesting just the likes of Rob Finnerty play. You know, will he sacrifice him for a nearly more defensive-minded player, or maybe hold the likes of Finnerty for the for the last 20 minutes because I don't think they have a huge amount of options from the bench at the minute so it'll be interesting to see you know, how, how that pans out but there's, there's so many parents you're looking at and it's so hard to know like Sean Kelly for me is an absolute huge player for Galway where is he going to play you know played midfield the last two games I'm just wondering is part choice here Mackinac to, to pick up Matty Rowan who, who has been mad at the match against Galway in the last two kind of finals um, and I don't I think he's the only player that would have the legs to go with Matty Rowan uh, in a head-to-head battle, but I I think he prefer to have him in an ideal world at six or three because I'm not sure how much he trusts his full backline. Um, I think he prefer to have him at three or even at six. But uh, yeah, they you know all these little things are going to be very interesting to see on Sunday. And sure, look, it might it might start in one one of those positions, and uh, you end up in the middle of the game making decisions and changes that uh, have a massive impact on the rest of your season one last question uh, you named your full forward line your expected full forward line a little bit earlier on is Aidan O'Shea starting 11 for you? Uh, depending there's, there's two things for me obviously Jordan Flynn is a big injury doubt if Jordan Flynn doesn't play I, I would expect Aidan to play at midfield and possibly the likes of uh, Kevin McLaughlin or Jeremy O'Connor coming into to an eleven. Position. Uh, if not, if Aiden doesn't play midfield, possibly you're looking at Jeremy coming into coming into midfield. Jeremy Connor coming into midfield. But I think I'm feeling it's going to be Aiden going to midfield and possibly picking up Paul Conroy, looking to do a, a, a American job on Paul Conroy and neglect his definitely his influence on the goal team. Okay, one last thing then the um, the suspensions that we've seen being lifted. As a player, are you paying attention to the, to that that that's happening? Uh, uh, so that's the first part of the question. The second part of the question is, what do you think of it now as somebody who is uh, is retired? Uh, you can, we can see red cards, we can see suspensions, but they don't seem to mean anything at the moment. 
if I look at you, you would if I was a player still playing and it was going on like the Donegal and Armagh situation at the minute, you won't be paying attention to it. Of course, you would, even though you're as much as you'd be trying to tell people you're not, you're you're going to be looking in. And if I was a Donegal player this this week, I'd be I'd be frustrated to be honest with you. Um, as as an ex player looking in, look at the 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 whole suspension process in the GA and the. The appeals committee, or whatever way it goes, it look, it's a joke. There's, I don't think, I don't think anyone else is going to tell you another way. My, my first reaction when I heard about their math players, and this is no disrespect to the math players, because if I was in their scenario, I would be doing everything. I would be on to my manager and on to county board doing everything I can to get me off. So this is not a go with them, but the, the, the whole, I just laughed when I kind of heard because it is, it's laughable. Like, um, you know, what, what is a referee supposed to do when the mini, next time the league breaks out? Whether it's at the end of the game or not, you know, why would you bother even giving out red cards or, or subsequently going after, you know, banning lads after what? Like, is there is there generally any point because they're going to get off? You know, when it comes to a stage where solicitors and barristers are picking out codes and referees' reports and video evidence and whatnot, I I, I just I, I don't know where we're going with this, but it is. Look, at, we're going to see more of it. You're going to see more red cards. You probably see Conor McKenna getting off. You probably see. More of this happening, and it's nothing new. It, there's been numerous examples over the years where boys have been getting off red cards, you know, blatant red cards through the years and getting them off them, you know, even very, very close, up to very, very close to the game. So it's something, it's not nice. It's not nice seeing a game. Like this happened, what, three weeks ago now, and we're coming up to a couple of days for the game, and the, and the three boys have been cleared to play. It's not It's not good enough. And look, I, I don't know I don't know what the answer is or what the fix is, but. Our system at the minute is um, it's not up to scratch to be, to be honest with you. Colin, good stuff. Enjoy the games. Thanks a million. Thanks a million, lads. It's Colin Boyle giving us some insight into what's going to happen between Mayo and Galway. Your quick picks are tomorrow, so um, you can give us a quick preview here. It's Mayo minus two. That's the line at the moment, and I think that that's probably uh, close enough to what I'd be thinking as well. The Jordan Flynn injury is a big one, I think. I think that's uh, significant. And obviously, well, you, the only information we've really got is how he looked in Croke Park that day, and it didn't look fantastic. I remember the Mayo Kildare game seeing Flynn Point, Flynn Point, Flynn Point. I was like, yes. And I was like, oh, balls, wrong Two Flynn. Flynn. <laughs> Three Flynn's. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, wrong Flynn. Unfortunately, he's very good. <laughs> Even better than ours at the moment. Uh, right, this is OTBAM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. One last opportunity to enter our competition to celebrate the end of the race season at Punchestown Festival and with thanks to Close Brothers, we have two pairs of tickets to give away for next week's festival. One lucky winner on tomorrow's show will have their tickets upgraded to include Lunch for Two and B&B at the Louis Fitzgerald Hotel with coach transfers to and from the race course. Who is this? You know, not even 12 months ago that I was lucky enough to win a Grand National. The reigning Tipperary person of the year. To be in with the chance of winning, uh, just tell us who that is. Enter, text your guest to 0879-180-180. Tweet at Off The Ball or comment wherever you're watching. Here's what's on OTB Sports Radio for you today. At 1 o'clock, OTB Gold is Manu Petit. 3 o'clock is Leaders Questions with Stuart Lancaster. 4 o'clock is our retro panel, Limerick Hurling in 2018. OTB Gold is Irish Football Special with Given, Quinn, McAteer and Kilban. And OTB is live tonight from 7 o'clock across all our social channels remember you can just ask your smart speaker to play OTB Sports Radio and of course you can also listen to OTB AM live on the uh, OTB Sports app every morning up next Tipperary MMA fighter Will Flory and we'll also bring you Katie McCabe's comments on calls for Ireland to move to the Aviva right after these OTB AM now we're turning our attention to MMA I'm delighted to say Will Flory is back with us in studio Will how are you getting on? yeah good congratulations you won a belt since we last saw you well yeah so uh, that was over in UAE or in UAE Wars in Abu Dhabi 
Um, so their fight boss promotion would be a fairly kind of it's a good belt to win because it means you're kind of on the coast for getting into UFC I suppose okay and that's the whole point because last time I think you were with us you were still with Bellator so not to get too much into the politics and weeds of it but like um, uh, fighters need to be business people and desperately need to manage their career properly to make sure you get the opportunity so what was behind leaving Bellator and going to the other promotion Uh, I had a six fight contract with Bellator I fought my six fights out I was told I was being re-signed once the contract ended that was in September 2020 Um, and then by about February 2021 I was like this contract isn't coming true what's happening because of Covid and all that they were saying oh we're delaying our operations we're not doing as many fights in Europe right my visa application was going through um, they were like pending a visa application we'll send you the contract and then about a month later I found out oh we're not re-signing you directly but we're still very open if we're coming to Europe we'll be working with you and then eventually it kind of became like a, we're not re-signing you right. um, now to be honest at the time I was kind of happy about that nearly because it opened up the, like I wasn't tied to a contract anymore I thought I'm a free agent now you know I've done well on my contract I can go out and put myself on the free market and there's going to be opportunities there there wasn't because of COVID basically um, so 2021 was tough you know it took a long time for anything to happen basically. so a fighter with no fights basically right? that was pretty much the position most people were in yeah we, we, we were just talking to Nicholas Roach a little bit earlier on and the quote that sprung to mind was uh, athletes die twice once when they lace up for the last time and once when they actually die you're in the middle of your career you think and it's like you know your identity is definitely bound up in this so what was that like so, like, to be honest, when the original lockdown happened, I thought it was going to be a bit of that as well. Um, but I managed to fight three times in 2020. And I still fought once in 2021. It was a year gap. I think it was September 2020 to September 2021 I didn't fight. But it was tough. Like, I was lucky in a way because I had a bunch of young lads who were coming in training with me every morning and I had a really good coach who was coming in with us every morning. So we were still progressing. And in a way, that period of time was massive for progressing as, you know, a technical, like, a fighter but you need the purpose you need the fight you need the thing you know it's what keeps you alive like so that was tricky yeah is there any way that you can bank that now as something that makes you plan for life after fighting sort of yeah I look you, you're definitely like I've always had an awareness this isn't going to last forever it's a very short window obviously but at the same time it's kind of made me hungrier to make the most of the window that I do have and it's been frustrating to not be able to make the most of that window. So uh, that's the, the the low point. When do you start having conversations with the other promotion? Um, so I fought originally, or after the Bellator contract ended, I kind of put myself out there, got on to every promoter I knew. Um, I got a lot back, but everyone was saying, oh, we're waiting on authorization to do this, and we're planning on doing this during the summer. Very little of that actually happened. Um, and then one guy over in he's a Polish promoter but it was in Bulgaria he was doing the event so I managed to get a fight on that event in September of 2021 after that I broke my hand I displaced fracture of the middle metacarpal uh, so it was a pretty bad break and that happened like first minute of the fight as well which was annoying um, but after the handbrake it was you know 12 weeks out I wasn't even there. like I wasn't fully back until about you know two three and a half like two and a half three months later um and then it became a thing of like christmas there's no fights in january yeah so it was all about what's going to happen in february and i was on to a couple of different management crowds i signed with ruby sports they seemed the most kind of consistent and they seemed the most honest 
and they were like yeah we can do things but you're not young and you know if you do well we can get you in um, so they got me a title shot straight away in UAE Wars which was a great fight to get I smashed it so I'm on the cusp now and so on the cusp means so that that's a kind of feeder tour essentially for Basically, UFC yeah, yeah. Um, now they don't see themselves as that but that's essentially what everyone uses them as okay so it's realistic the UFC is, is on the horizon yeah definitely and I'm not the only one there's a few of us in Irish MMA who are right on the cusp right and what does on the cusp mean how, how, does, how do you teeter over see a lot of it is management a lot of it is like who you know and how they're going to get you in um, now like I was pretty reluctant to sign with anybody because they're going to take a percentage of what you earn and you're already you know <laughs> it's not exactly the best paying sport in the world anyway I had a pretty good contract with Bellator so I was doing alright out of that um, I wasn't paying a management fee I was giving John his fee like you were managing uh, yourself or getting yeah. yourself and John Cavanagh yeah yeah. and uh, then it came to the point where I'm not really getting the opportunities I should be getting for a fight with my record um, so I did my own thing for that fight in Bulgaria I know a lot of people in the game anyway and I'd be good at getting on to people so I thought oh, I'm going to do well out of this nah you need to know the right people and <laughs> like yeah. managers have the game sewn up a little bit that's how they make a percentage out of this yeah um, so I went with Ruby Sports and it looks like having won that title should be a pretty good bet me getting into UFC pretty soon okay and how does that process work is that like a is that a multi-fight contract is it a one-fight contract is it like a you, you get a chance at the UFC and if you do well they'll they'll double down and give you a longer period how does that work just depends yeah right depends that's all up for grabs yeah basically okay like and it depends on your position going into it what sort of contract you'll get and how long that contract will be and that sort of thing okay uh, what do you hope happens when, when do you hope to fight next um, so I do have a visa that I didn't realise like I I had approval for a visa through Bellator to fight um, in the States yeah okay uh, so a P1 I had a P1 from 2018 to 2020 uh, I reapplied for my P1 in 2020 when it expired uh, so that expired in June 2020 I reapplied around September time uh, i actually had that approved in around September of 2020 I didn't realise that but I never got the visa printed because of Covid and because everything was going on um, You've got some experience with the uh, the vagaries of the um, uh, visa system Owen. Yeah yeah, it's an interesting it's a minefield Oh with the States <laughs> yeah and they treat you lovely when you go in as well um, but basically I have to just physically go to the embassy and get that printed now right. and then I have like a two or three month window with a visa Um so if I can get in straight away that way great if not I'll probably defend that belt and if I can get a finish defending that belt I'd imagine that'll be straight in but you don't know nothing's guaranteed anymore no of course and if if you were to fight in the UFC like um, when you're looking at the level of fighters who are there at the moment how do you feel you, you match up against them very well yeah like look that's the reason you want it so badly you're looking at guys and you're thinking well I've the skill set to completely dismantle these guys I've trained with a lot of guys who are in the UFC you know it's not a different thing they're the same fighter they're the same people it's just a different brand and it's so much more like look every young lad gets into MMA because they want to fight in the UFC someday um, that's still always been my dream and I like I suppose I feel like I owe it to myself to go and give myself a legacy because Bellator wasn't really that and that's no insult to them you know they did a great job they paid well they just they're weird promotionally they don't really they're looking for kind of like fake superstars and it just doesn't work whereas with UFC if you're legit enough you go in and prove it 
and they'll give you the opportunity as long as you're legit enough. So this is my chance to go and prove that. Well, was the UFC on that trajectory as well for a while, the creation of fake superstars, and have they gone more legitimate, to use that phrase? Uh, there's always been a bit of both. Yeah. So, like, you look at, they tried to bring, like, our CM Punk, and they have other guys coming in that they're kind of protecting. But in general, after one or two fights, you're going to get to a point where you're going to have to be pretty good. Otherwise, mm. you're going to be found out. And say even likes the stage Norcutt, uh, he was a guy who was, like, really touted coming in, looked incredible, like, serious athlete had like some very fancy kicks and they got him in and they got a few grapplers and they absolutely smashed him and he got caught fairly quickly after that and he fights for a different crowd now so if you're not good enough you won't last mm. and that's always kind of been they'll bring you in they'll use you for a little while and then you'll get thrown to the wolves and if you're not able to deal with that best luck mm. I guess from Bellator's point of view then as well there was from your perspective some really high points like I mean I remember watching you there right before the pandemic in the, the three arena when you had that win like those sort of moments to, to get to another point where you can experience that now and get that adrenaline rush how important is that? Huge yeah but like I kind of want to surpass any of that um, there was some very special nights in the three arena and like it was a good buzz but it's about kind of look are you one of the best in the world and that's always what I wanted to prove so fighting in the tree arena yeah it's incredible it's an unbelievable atmosphere but you can win a fight in the tree arena and it doesn't mean you're a class fighter I want to go out there and prove that no I'm going to achieve way more than anyone in Irish MMA ever thought I could like uh, Can I ask when you are a fighter without a fight what's motivating you when you're going into training every day? That knowing that you're going to have a fight someday mm. and even say mid-pandemic there where it was fairly obvious you weren't it's kind of that desire to just get better like you're competing against other lads every day anyway so if you have someone who can give you trouble you kind of want to go back in the next day and get an edge and you know work on that tool that's going to be able to stop that guy giving you trouble there's always little things you can find motivation in and some of it is just like well I love doing it and you know if you're if you feel like you're progressing in anything you're going to keep going back to it and you're going to keep being kind of drawn back into the thing mm. so there was a few things I found over the lockdown that I was kind of getting a good bit better at and I started to kind of nearly get hooked on it and once you've got progress you're hooked into it like what kind, what kind of stuff sorry so just like my hand speed was all like something I really wanted to work on um, so I was doing all these drills at home and it was just an easy like I bought a little freestanding bag that moves around and I was just working my hand speed load um, and that was just something I spent like 45 minutes, half an hour every day kind of just tipping around with. And then I'd be going in. So we were fully shut down for a while, obviously, during 2020. Um, but as soon as we were back doing a little bit, I was kind of meeting up with a lot of lads in the morning. We'd do a session before the session just because we only had the one window and we normally have the whole day to train. Uh, so it was just like a two-hour window in the morning. So we'd go in early, we'd drill, we'd like move around with each other. And you'd feel like, oh, I'm getting that a little bit. I'm catching that a bit earlier. Or like even leg locks was something that worked a lot over the lockdown. And like you could feel your brain just knowing things eventually where it's like, oh, this was conscious for ages. And now it's kind of a subconscious yeah. skill that you've acquired. Like, Yeah. So that's the, the benefit of, uh, of training. Is, is John Cavanagh still your coach? Yeah. And uh, what kind of involvement does he also have then in, in helping to shape your career? Because he's obviously seen everything and knows how the whole business works. So, say with Bellator, he'd have a large involvement. 
uh, with most of the other crowds less so but it depends like it just depends who the promoter is and how much he'd know them so yeah. it's kind of like it's a personal relationship type of thing yeah um, but say with the bigger promoter like you know with UFC or with 1FC or with even UAE Wars it's kind of through your management you'd be dealing with those and you're kind of paying them for connections basically that's the whole point of having them on board basically yeah and it's probably a better thing as well like uh, to have a separation between the coaching and the management yeah is important. definitely yeah. Yeah. yeah Um, in terms of your record at this stage right uh, like you haven't actually fought that much as a professional over the, the course of your career so you're, you know it's not like um there's the old phrase oh, that team can't go to the well too much you still have a bit left loads yeah that's how I feel anyway <laughs> what's, what's your like what's your own kind of time frame here for the next couple of years uh, in terms of like is there a cutoff point where you go okay that's my best shot has been given or is it like like is there an age or is there a the number of fights I don't think it's an age like I thought when I turned 30 that I'd feel different or that something would change and thankfully it hasn't if anything I've become a better athlete since it's not a field sport. It's not where, you know, you lose that half inch on running down a pitch and you're just not as effective anymore. Like, I got better timing than I did two years ago. I'm probably faster at most of the things I was doing two years ago than I... Like, I'm probably faster now than I was two years ago. Um, and if you look, most of the guys at the highest level of the game, they're mid to late 30s. Now, I'm going to base it on how I feel and how well I'm doing because... If I can make a legit living out of this and, you know, like, get to where, like, I see myself, uh, then it's going to be good times and, you know, why not milk that a little bit? Uh, but if you're showing up and you get your ass whooped and, you know, it's not the way you saw it all, well then, what the fuck are you doing here? Yeah. You know? So, Fair enough, you understand. Yeah. yeah. But like, and it's kind of a binary thing. You, you'll know yeah. from the results. <laughs> you know, it's it's going to be fairly obvious whether you're doing well or not. Like, um, so. Yeah, that's the brutality of the game, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Uh, the style, like, and has your style evolved to be more commercial as you've got older and you've realised that actually if I'm going to do this thing, I need to win in this way or... Sort of. So like in the middle of my career, I had a lot of fights that were submission victories and where I wasn't really hurting the guy on the feet. Um, my last two fights, like I've dropped... Well, I dropped the Bulgarian... Like in Bulgaria, I dropped your man three times. In the last fight, I dropped your man three times as well. So six times I dropped... Now, I didn't finish either of those guys. They were both decisions. I have the excuse of having a broken hand both times. Um, but it is an excuse. There were still ways there. And I look back at those fights and I was like, there's still opportunities there. Uh, but I didn't get hit on the feet once in any of those fights. I dropped my opponent three times each. Um, I've definitely, like, look, even just... I've, I feel like I've kind of brought my game to a point where I'm not going to get fucked up by it. Or, like, I'm not going to get challenged by what you're doing and I'm going to find my way of hurting you. Uh, and that's been the case in the vast majority of my sparring, and I've, like, I want the chance to prove that, basically. And you can talk all you want, but I've done it, and I want to do it in public. The, the talking is actually also part of the fight game in a weird way, where you, you need to talk some stuff into existence. Are there specific UFC fighters that you have... Uh, in mind fights in, in target like is that something that you can call people out and it becomes a thing and that will help you to get there yeah, or? I think when I'm on the roster that's something I'll be starting to do but for now it's about getting your foot in the door 
and whoever they want me to fight, I'd be willing to fight. Yeah. You know, so it's not a thing of like, oh, that guy, I want that guy badly. Because then you're going to be calling out some guy lower in the division. Okay, great. What's some win against somebody who nobody really cares about going to do for you? Yeah. Get me in. Match me with whoever the hell you want to, and I'll smash that guy. And then we can start talking. Yeah. So otherwise, it's uh, it's empty talk until it's real talk, and then it's real talk. Yeah, and like, is there a time frame for that to happen? Is it when you say you're you're teetering in the brink? Is it like you'll know in the next month or two? I would hope so, but again, it's obviously an unlimited time. As in, like, what are you going to go and do in the meantime? Like, will I defend that belt in Abu Dhabi? If I have to, I will go back smash a lad there. Then you're in an even better position. Say, if I get a title defense, uh, they're talking to me about some Brazilian guy who's also ten and three. If I get a title defense against him and knock him out, I'm pretty much in is the way I'd see it but then what, it, there's no guarantee either no so then maybe defend that belt again okay you, if you keep proving it like if you are this and you keep proving it eventually it's going to happen yeah I, I, you would hope so the, the other thing is that the game is so weird and, and difficult to get into that like that's the whole benefit of having the management company right yeah and they seem pretty competent so I have faith in them and I have faith in myself how, so. do you, how do you judge how competent the management company is when you're ringing around so I signed with these guys because the matchmaker with Brave um, who I fought with years ago back in 2018 is now running part of this like so he's the guy who I deal with on a daily basis and he's just he's an extremely competent I know him personally um, and he was one of the few people I met in MMA that I was like well he's a matchmaker he's nothing to do directly with me but I kind of trust them because there's a lot of sketchy, sketchy folk in this game. Like, just what I ask, like, it, it, it's kind of more the, the that that is the he's the exception to the to the norm, basically the competent guy. It's it's mostly incompetent people. Or uh, I wouldn't say incompetent, but like shady and like you know, you'll be used as a tool to get someone else where they want to be, and that sort of thing. You know, and like that's life. That's everything in business. You know, but in a way, if you get somebody who you see as being honest and who you know, look, this person's seen me do well in the past they know what I'm about they believe in what I'm in and they'll work for it so yeah uh, you, you said that it's great to win a fight at uh, the uh, three arena but it needs to mean something it clearly felt like uh, winning a belt in Abu Dhabi was something that means something for your career so did that did that have a was that even more meaningful could you take in that experience yeah it was, it was class um, like you know I suppose having something physical as well like you got a belt and it was a cool like yeah. it's fucking pretty well made and like it's very heavy and like everyone I give it to is like whoa yeah it's a real thing yeah uh, that's nice but it's satisfying for a pretty short period of time like that's great you've won this right what's next um, I can do so much more than that like the guy who I beat I'd already beaten it kind of does take away that sense of achievement um, like he's their light heavyweight champion as well and the whole reason they started doing this is because they wanted him to come down and win two belts right and I was like, well, you think he's going to beat me? And I absolutely, like, wasn't close at all. <laughs> like, um, but, like, there's a satisfaction in that, but it's gone quickly. And I feel like I, owe it, like, I have a lot more in me, and I owe it to myself to go out and show that. Like, uh, it, What's your selling point to the UFC when you're having those conversations? Is it that you can bring an Irish audience in the States? Is it, like... I imagine it's my management more that are having those conversations, but more that, look, this guy will just give them any opportunity and like that seems to be how they work if you're not coming in with a massive profile which I'm not like let's be honest you know like they don't really give a shit about me or care about what I am but at the same time I'm a legit fighter who'll show up whenever you want and fight and take on anybody 
So it's kind of like if there's a hole in a card, we can slot this guy into that hole. Then if you go in, you show what you can do. Oh shit! You're in the door. Yeah, that's that's how it works. You you, you get one shot, one opportunity, as the song goes. <laughs> there you uh, go. So how is the hand? Uh, yeah, it's like a, there's a small fracture, and uh, it's kind of like affecting the movement of my wrist more than actually my hand. So that'll like it's four weeks since the fight, or three and a bit weeks since the fight. I probably have another like three-ish weeks of healing, and I can do quite a bit during that three weeks. Yeah. So I've like my last break was a lot worse. I was in cast for like. Is it the same break or is it a different no, break? no, totally different break? Okay, yeah. okay, well, that's um, good. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and yeah. like you're unlikely to break the same bone twice if you let it heal properly because the bone's going to be callous. Is that like you know I had a huge lump in the middle of my hand from the callus of right. the last bone healing. Okay. So that's just a big block of bone. It's pretty unlikely to break that again if you get me. Okay. So all is all is good in that front and. Um, Hopefully you'll hear in the next month and then hopefully a fight in the next three months. Yeah, I'd like to fight during the summer. So say like kind of June, July, August time. Um, and then again, by the end of the year would be great. All right. Well, well we wish you the very best of luck. Um, and maybe you could be the next Tipperary person of the year. after oh. that was, that was <laughs> Nobody's rooting rights for Blackmore for a while now. Anyway. I think so. I don't think so. I think she's definitely going to be for the next couple of years. Maybe if they win All-Ireland from this position and knock uh, Limerick off their perch. Yeah. But um, you know, hold my breath. <laughs> uh, a UFC belt, what might get you there? Yeah, uh, hopefully. <laughs> well, best of luck with it. Thanks really for joining us in the studio this morning. A reminder: OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Donald Moran is the winner of our competition today. You're going to Punchtown Festival next week. With thanks to Close Brothers, Rachel Blackmore was of course the answer for that one. Tomorrow we'll chat with Alan Quinlan, Quivo O'Neill. The crappy quiz is back and much more. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar.